What's up my fellow poker enthusiasts, it's Renee aka The Wacko here and together with my co-host Adam Carmichael we present to you the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In this podcast we deconstruct high stakes poker players figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. Over the years, me and Adam have gained a lot of experience in both reaching high stakes poker ourselves and teaching other players to do the same. We have bundled all this knowledge together in our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker, which is the most complete poker coaching product on the market. If you want to have a chance to work with me and Adam so you can get unstuck and make more progress in your poker career, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com to apply. But without further ado, let's learn from another high stakes player's journey in today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast. Today, we will be chatting with Patrick Howard. Patrick spends most of his time developing poker strategies and coaching players in both cash games and MTTs. He has shaped his philosophy by moving up the stakes himself and teaching hundreds of students how to crush various pools and game types. Next to strategy creation, Patrick is very big on approaching poker like a professional and designing your life in a way that makes it possible for you to perform consistently at a high level. Someone who knows a thing or two about how to perform consistently at your highest potential is my co-host, co-mechanics of poker coach, Mr. Mindset and Performance, Adam Carmichael. Adam, what are you most excited for chatting with today's guest? Yes, I'm very excited to speak with Patrick today. I think we share a lot of interest in how to be a high performer and get the most out of yourself as a poker player. He's a very smart guy who thinks about things deeply. He's been recommended a lot by our previous guests on the podcast. So looking forward to picking his brains. Also going deep into uh, mental health and how to uh, optimize everything around being a poker player and the challenges that come with that. So yeah, hopefully some deep topics we covered today that will be interesting for the listener. Before we start, I would like to give a big shout out to the sponsor of the pod, GTO Wizard. So sign up to GTO Wizard using the link below, gtowizard.com slash mechanics. Get 10% off your first month and join the weekly coaching webinars of which one per month is with me. Really looking forward to educating you guys there. But without further ado, let's start the pod. All right, there is Mr. Patrick Howard. Thank you for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Patrick, you have been, uh, you have actually had, from what I understood, digging a bit in your story, you've had two poker playing careers. One of them uh, starting at an age that was maybe not the most TOS approved. I think you were around 12 <laughs> playing uh, a bunch of online poker together with your brother, Nick Howard, who I'm sure many of, many of the listeners are familiar with. After a couple of years, from what I understood, you lost some interest in poker and started to travel and pursued education in physics. Instead, what you actually mentioned helped you in your approach to poker. So definitely I'm curious uh, later on in the pod to ask you um, how that transitioned and what kind of skills transition that helped you in poker. Uh, given your brother, Nick was still very big into poker though, both playing and coaching. In 2018, you did get sucked back into the game and joined Detox both as a student and as a coach from what I understood. And I was curious, like, what is it about the game of poker that put you back in and why does it remain so interesting to you even up until today i don't really know why exactly i got sucked back in except 
I think at that point in my life, I didn't have too many other options, or at least it didn't feel that way. I had tried to do a PhD in biophysics, and I very quickly realized that it wasn't for me, that I, I, I didn't really have a future in that. And then after that, I just worked in restaurants for a couple of years. I thought that I wanted to own a, a pizzeria or a sandwich shop or something. And I think I might still do something like that in the future, maybe way down the road. But I realized after two years of working in restaurants that that is just like an incredibly difficult career. And I felt kind of burnt out from that. And then it was just sort of a serendipitous thing. I went on this retreat with Nick and some of the other detox guys. and. I hadn't really thought about poker in a very long time, except talking with Nick. Um, but then to actually be there and to see it, and um, they just happened to be making a ton of money at that time because Poker Master had just come out and they were like crushing these app games. Um, I just kind of, I didn't have much else at the time and I, I was looking very appealing to me. And I don't know, something just shifted and I just knew like, that I wanted to get back into poker. And what about up until today? For example, you could maybe do other things as well. Why why do you keep why do you stay in poker and why does poker remain interesting to you? Or what do you do to keep poker interesting for you? Maybe that's actually a better question. Yeah. So it's been like about five or six years since I started poker again. And initially you know, I just loved getting back into the strategy and competing. I feel like the first sort of chapter, the first couple of years was just proving that I could beat high stakes and make good money just playing the game. And then I had another chapter where I was coaching for Nick's stable. I was like the, the head coach of Poker Detox CFP. And that challenge was like, can I actually teach low stakes and micro stakes players to beat this game for a significant amount of money. Um, more recently, I've been working with high stakes players. And to be honest, the, the actual poker side of things, the strategy, it's not as, um, you know, exciting as it was in the very beginning when I started, you know, things just do get a little bit stale over time. But I think what motivates me the most now is just the people that I get to work with. Um, Matthew Marinelli, who was just on the podcast before me, and I'm actually in his apartment right now. I'm renting out his apartment for a month. He's in Canada right now playing on GG Poker. Um, and a, a bunch of other people that I work with, they're just like, they're such good poker players. I really admire their dedication and their work ethic. And yeah, right now, that's kind of the main thing that motivates me to keep going. I'm just like, you know, kind of um awestruck by the work ethic of some of these guys and i'm just like trying to keep up yeah it's more so the the people that you get to surround yourself with on a daily basis that that's really something that attracts you yeah it gives you momentum i think or inertia keeps you going yeah for sure you know if you have a little bit of a lazy day or you feel a little bit sorry for yourself or like, ah, and then you have all these people around you and they're like oh shit yeah okay the standard is quite high and you immediately get push to a higher level yourself as well. When you when you got back into poker, you actually moved up the stakes really quickly. You started to play, I think, 200 NL, and within like six months or so, you were already playing 2K NL. Why was it that you were able to excel so quickly, you think? Um, 
I think that I had a different approach to the game where I focused a lot on exploits and I was able to look at uh, population tendencies and come up with a lot of really effective exploits. So, you know, I, I didn't really know very much about theory at all at that time. Uh, I was kind of just clicking buttons, to be completely honest. And I was playing in anonymous games, so I was able to get away with that. You know, people can't really counter-exploit you. So I would say the exploits, you know, were, were really what were making me the money. Um, and I didn't really feel like I was doing too much of anything special. But when I look back, you know, I was really just only focusing on poker. It was my entire life at the time, for better or for worse. I think it helped the results, but, you know, the work-life balance was really not there at all. So I did approach it with a really, I think, a strong work ethic. And I thought that that was kind of normal until I started coaching a lot more like other low-stakes players. And then I saw that they really weren't approaching the game like that. So I think that set me apart initially. So you also noticed when starting to work with students that it, the strategical aspect was maybe only a small part that you had to teach them. It was mainly like, hey, guys, uh, you need to put in a certain work ethic. When you say work ethic, what what kind of practical things are we talking about? Yeah, so I think if you're struggling at low stakes to make money and, and to move up in the stakes, you probably have like a logistical issue. So I think a lot of low stakes players treat poker more like a video game hobby than they would like a serious job or you know like you would treat your education if you were in college or something um just simple things first of all like playing on a schedule so you're going to play maybe four hours a night um i would recommend figuring out what is the best possible time for you to play when when are the games the best and play and I was just playing like four hours per night, five days a week on average. But I had a very strict schedule that I would stick to. And this is another thing that I just kind of thought was standard. But I realize now that a lot of poker players will just play poker when they feel like it. Um, I also had like a pretty rigid study routine. So like every morning after I played a session the night before, I would go over every single pot that I had played over, I think, 10 big blinds, but sometimes I would go down to five big blinds. And I would just make sure that I could justify every single decision uh, that I was making. And so, you know, things like that, I think I just had a more serious routine uh, than a lot of low stakes players did. You were also active as a coach correct at detox how did you complement your brother nick in that coaching for detox in the beginning well when i first started at detox it was a very small group it was like maybe 10 people i think even less and so the way that nick coached was really to just get everybody together on a call or in a room and he would just teach like he would he would talk to the players and there really wasn't a lot of curriculum or like you know, physical materials that we could give students. So the first thing that I started doing was just, I would, I would try to take as much information and knowledge as I could from Nick and put it into documents. And, and this is just like how I learn. 
So it wasn't just for the stable, but it was also for me because I wanted to just have everything on paper that he was saying because uh, it helped my study process. So that was just how I started um, was just by uh, sort of recording and documenting everything that Nick was saying. So I, I think that the way we complemented each other was that you know, he had a lot of ideas in his head and I was sort of the organizational component to a lot of that. Mm, that seems very, very complementary to each other. Besides Nick, anyone else that comes up that had a very big influence in your poker career or your current success that comes up? Honestly, not really. Um, I kind of stayed pretty insulated and I still am. Uh, I do. I am a lot more active on social media now. And so I do kind of, but that's mostly just me putting ideas out there. I don't have too much discourse. I still, to this day, I haven't really, I think I purchased maybe one poker course in my life and I haven't really read a lot of poker books or anything. So I kind of just got like my basic knowledge of theory from Nick. He was always there if I had a question about mandatory defense frequency or, or you know, optimal bluffing frequency, basic concepts and theory like that. And then I, I just sort of came up with my own way of looking at the game, which I think uh, was definitely a benefit. I will shout out Salo Costa because we studied together back in 2019 and him and his business partner, Mateus, they run Metagame, uh, which is a, a, it started out as a Brazilian stable, but I think they're global now. They were the first ones who introduced me really to uh, hand to note. We were using it at Poker Detox before they came along, but they were starting to use it for things that we didn't even know you could use it for, like analyzing bluff catching spots, like actually looking at range composition. Um, so when he showed me kind of the stuff that you could do with that program, that's when I got really inspired to learn hand to note and, and you know, learn like everything that that program could do. So it's interesting because we actually have Mateos on, I think one of the, one of the earlier podcasts that we did. And he actually mentioned that he got inspired from, from Nick, if I'm not mistaken, he won, I think a free coaching car or something with Nick. And then, but yeah. he also mentioned, yeah, with his free stuff, I basically already built everything in hand to note myself. And then it's funny that then you start yeah. to talk with them and then they teach you. It's funny how these things go, go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. That was 2018. I remember that call that they did and Mateus, uh, couldn't, I don't think he could speak any English or just very little at the time. I think Salo could speak a little bit. So it was like very hard for us to even communicate with one another. Now they both speak amazing English and it's, it's just amazing to see how far those guys have come. They've like just totally crushed it. Um, but yeah, so like Nick had used hand to note initially to study the population's defense frequencies and, and to prove that people were overfolding in a ton of different spots, but those guys, they recreated all of that work and then they did even more. And I think we had maybe, I don't know if we'd gotten a little bit lazy or if we just kind of reached a dead end, we thought with hand to note, but then they came and they, and they showed, you know, we not only recreated your work, but we expanded on it a lot. And it was kind of this like, oh shit moment. Like I have to, you know, we, we got to get back on, <laughs> on top of the ball here and like, you know, 
it's like someone joining you at the table so with a very advanced strategy it's like oh you know sometimes you get a bit in your comfort zone right like oh i got this all figured out and then someone else has to come along that does something revolutionary and it's like oh wait i haven't thought about this yeah there's the saying this type of people yeah there's there's a saying that i like i forget who said it but it's only the paranoid survive and i think you need a little bit of that where you have to be looking around and not underestimate your competition. If you see somebody doing something good, you, you do kind of have to sometimes be like, okay, we're doing that and make sure that they don't just completely overtake you. It's funny, but then from like, um, as you mentioned, like you don't really consume other poker content. I'm actually a bit of the opposite. I'm also a little bit of a fan. I like to hear how other people think about. So anything that's sort of available, I try to, uh, I try to get my hands on to see like, okay, what's your approach? Or especially also from a coaching perspective or a content making perspective, I'm also curious to learn from that myself. Okay, how do you deliver your content? Oh, maybe I can improve here. Yeah, and I will say that at this point, I have a lot of people on my team who are a lot more dialed in to the poker industry and they will show me like, I don't know, for example, just last month, um, there's a, a new solver called Rocket Solver. I think that's what it's called. I haven't used it personally, but a, a few people on my team are starting to use it a lot because it's good for like multi-way stuff and bomb pots. It does that all that like really quickly. And so I, it, it's not like a badge of honor to be in, on your own little island. I think there, there can be some good things from that. You can have really unique ideas about the game. Um, but, you know, as you get further and further, it just becomes more of a weakness. So I've just kind of plugged that weakness by having good people on my team who can show me different stuff. Yeah, I noticed it with, with ourselves as well and my community, even though some people, for example, are students, but you can learn a lot from them as well, especially if they are at that point of their career where they're super eager, they spend 24-7 on poker, they will stay on top of things and they will sometimes explain, oh, no, you can do this nowadays way easier with this program or with this program. So th this way you can still yeah, stay, stay on top of the game, basically. Yeah, and if you're a player, you can apply this as well. It's really important just to have other people around to study with, have a little bit of, of community. Um, obviously, it depends on the quality of your community. You don't really just want to be surrounding yourself with anybody. But, you know, you just have these serendipitous moments where somebody could just say, like, have you seen this new solver that came out? Or this poker course is really good. Or maybe this site this poker site is super soft. You should try putting some money on this site and it'll keep you from, you know, just like being too narrow focused and, and just doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Throughout all the podcasts that we did, networking always comes back and how important is the peer group that you have around you. And for, for multiple reasons, the ones that you just stated included as well. I was curious what you said that you were playing a very hyper exploitative strategy, uh, but there's also like a popular popular belief popular saying that in order to exploit, you first need to know what is correct. But you actually mentioned that you didn't know theory at all. So how did that kind of then work? Because, for example, I would say I was, I guess everyone who succeeded pre-solver and was doing very well intuitively had a good sense of how like the concept behind the solver worked. So even though we, obviously there was many things that I thought I was exploiting that, that in hindsight was not exploited at all. I was just exploited myself when solvers came out. Um, but how then did you know that they were making a mistake? 
if we did not know what was actually correct. Okay, so when I say that I didn't know theory back then, um, I did know fundamental concepts in theory. So things like pot odds, which lead to minimum defense frequency. So how much you need to defend versus a bet or a raise. And also optimal bluffing frequency. So based on your bet size, again, same as minimum defense frequency, how much you need to be bluffing and how much you need to be value betting, also known as value to bluff ratio. Those concepts, like if you know those, that's often enough to be a very strong exploitative player. Yeah, if you put that you next to the data and you say, well, this only has to work 40% uh, of the time, but it's working 55% exactly. of the time, well, do the math. Yeah. So you can be a pretty strong exploitative player just by understanding those fundamental concepts in theory, but you you might also not know, for example, like I didn't know how to really construct my check back range on the turn after I see that the flop. You know, I just had no idea really how to do that in a balanced way. Um, so I just didn't really focus on that because I knew that that was a much harder problem to solve. And I just kind of let that be because I was playing in anonymous games. And, you know, you can literally just triple barrel every single time that you don't have a hand if you if you want to, if people are overfolding. Yeah, so, so you, you could say that you were, you were spending your energy on the things that were actually making you money the most. Yeah. And I guess that also simplifies the, or at least it helps with your decision-making process because you're no longer confused. It's quite simple. Well, I need to get to the river because then they overfold. Then I just make this bet and they overfold 15%. So I make a lot of money. And then which hand you would put there, which which properties your check back, which type of bluff you would put there, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, poker is just complicated enough already. You know, even if you drastically simplify things, it's still, you're still going to have a lot of tough decisions. So my focus at that point was um, definitely keep things as simple as possible, focus on the exploits that are making me the money and, and just basically get to the river where I knew I had certain exploits, mainly bluffing too much because people were just overfolding, especially in 2019 more so than they are now they still are but it was you know every year they get a little bit better at defending i think and so that was just kind of my overall strategy yeah it is funny to see i've i probably started to work with data i think in the same 2018 2019 i definitely had to spend a lot more time i was mainly using holder manager which is a little bit less user friendly so i wasted a lot of time but i also at the moment i thought it gave me I don't know. I still have sometimes a mix. Some things I prefer doing hold the manager. Some things I prefer doing in hand to note because hold the manager sometimes from a creative perspective allows me a bit more flexibility on the fly that I kind of miss in hand to note or at least the way I use hand to note. Uh, sure, there's a lot of room for improvement there. Um, but yeah, you see that then if I compare data from, for example, if I see a presentation that I gave for my CFP four years ago or something and I see a data and then I run the same data, it's like, oh, things are things are changing quite drastically. Compared to like the data for how the pool is playing four years ago to how the pool is playing right now. Have you, have you seen the same observation? Yeah, but I, I guess I think of it sort of like plate tectonics, like the, the pools are moving really, they're just inching along and they're progressing each year a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't worry about it too much because I know that like, if I really focus on improving, I can improve so much faster than the population 
can improve as a whole. But yeah, the you know, pools are definitely getting better every year. If you want to be successful in this game, you have to at least, you know, stay on that same rate of improvement. But I think it's actually pretty easy to improve a lot faster than they can if you put your mind to it. What do you think is a good example, top of mind of like something that used to be a huge league of population that nowadays they are getting closer to what is considered optimal? And why do you think they managed to close that leak? I The first example that jumps to mind is just defending versus small C-bets. Like when a player's in the big blind out of position in a single race pot, I think for many years, people would fold to the one-third flop C-bet like up to 40%. And the correct frequency is more like 33% or 34%. Um, big blind versus button. So I think that small C bet was something that started getting utilized a lot more right after solvers hit the market. People started using Pio and they realized, oh, I'm just supposed to C bet range for small on these boards. And then people started using it a lot more. And then when people encounter something a lot more, then they start to get better at defending against it. Yeah, and I guess you also see it, it makes sense, right? Something works a lot, so everyone starts using it, and therefore you encounter it more, and therefore you have to improve your defense versus the new common strategies, so to speak. That's kind of what happens. I think what you also notice is basically the earlier street, for example, defending versus a flopsy bet is already easier to get closer to GTO frequency than on a later street because you had to do some things right also on a previous street. Plus, you have to do the things right on the current street. So there's like a compound effect that makes it a bit harder to defend. Have you seen, if you notice that as well, basically the earlier the street, let's say pre-flop, even though pre-flop, obviously we, we can we can debate about, uh, the earlier the street, the more closer people are to theory approved. And I guess with the years, later streets will follow to a certain degree. Yeah, I think that's generally true, although I will say that I think the turn is a lot harder to play than people give it credit for. I think the turn might be the hardest street to play in a, in a lot of ways, because um, on the river, a lot of, you know, a lot of things collapse and, and are, are a lot more static because there's no cards left to, to deal. But yeah, I think in general, the more people see a spot and the more they play it, the probably the better they're going to play it. That's just sort of uh, an equilibrium that gets reached. You know, if you if you have massive pre-flop leaks, you're you're probably not going to make a lot of money uh, playing poker. Same with the flop. And yes, I agree that if a mistake is based on, you know, a, a series of mistakes, like if you're if you're overfolding the turn too much because you check the flop way too weak uh, versus mm -hmm. certain bet, that is like twice as hard to fix because you have to fix two mistakes instead of one. Yeah, you also have to identify what it is because let's say, for example, you overfold the river in a certain spot. You have to identify if it's, well, am I just folding hands that are defense or am I not arriving with the hands that it's defending and therefore I always fold, right? It's like two of the ways. I think also river, as, as you mentioned, I, I do agree that the harder I think you find playing the river I think the more you also didn't think about it on an earlier street. So I would usually say that a lot of the river mistakes or tough spots that you might find yourself in are kind of as-played scenarios because, for example, you mentioned on the turn, but maybe already already on the flop, you didn't look ahead and you you didn't adjust for what's about to come 
very likely in the future and didn't mm -hmm. adjust your frequencies or your range construction accordingly. Yeah, I agree with that. Especially like what comes to mind is bluffing. So if you get to the river and you don't know what your river range is actually supposed to look like in that spot, then how are you going to identify what your weakest hands are to bluff? You might have a weak hand, but you don't really know where that hand fits in your overall range. So yeah, exactly. I, I think that that's mm -hmm. true for sure. Yeah. And also, let's say, for example, you arrive in a river with a bluff. If you don't have a good visualization of your overall range, you might give up a river bluff in a spot where actually your bluff allowance is so big that you could basically bluff everything. And actually you're giving up a bluff or vice versa. You're like, well, I have eight high. Or, well, I have no showdown value, but it's a spot where your bluff allowance is maybe, say, only 50%, and you're just always bluffing, you're easily over-bluffing. So it's very, very important to keep track of your range on every street and your opponent's range as well to kind of know how the strategies will look because in the end, yeah, it's very range-driven. Adam, I'm curious, in Heads Up Sitting Goes, in the time that you were playing, data was already uh, was already a thing? Did you did did you do any like population research on okay what are the tendencies of uh, SUP sit and go players? Yeah, there was lots of database analysis. We were using big sample sizes on the player pool. So generally, in heads of sit and goes, you're either playing regs, so you're playing a quite uh, GTO based strategy. Though looking back in those days, quite laughable what we came up with as GTO. And then you play basically a very exploit strategy against the recreationals, and you had big data pools. We were using PT4 and Holder Manager to. Uh, Come with exploit strategies on the pool but uh yeah obviously things have evolved a lot now the software you have behind to note and the kind of yeah, database analysis you can do right now is so much higher to uh yeah to be able to uh, strategize better and create those kind of exploits but yeah i think data pool analysis and exploiting the pool is always such a big part of poker and as far down we go with the solvers like coming back to pool tendencies and i know uh, Patrick and your stable, you've you guys are really specialized in understanding the data, the data pools and exploiting them. So yeah, I think it's a a really really big part of the poker that's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, so I want to uh, change the story a little bit to uh, a tough part in your poker career. I know I was covered the glamorous stuff, which is fun. Uh, but you had a downswing around 2019, and you mentioned your mindset was fried, and you literally couldn't play anymore during this time. So I'm really curious to know what unfolded during the end of 2019, and what were some of the challenges you were experiencing that made you take a bit of a break from poker at that time? Well, I, I had a very quick rise up the stakes. Um, like was mentioned before, I started out playing 200 now and then got to 1K and then 2K now very quickly, like within six months. And I think I made about 50K at 2K now very quickly. Um, for I just got lucky. I mean, the first shot that I took, I think I made like almost 20 buy-ins at 2K in my first weekend playing at that limit. So pretty much couldn't have gone better, except for the fact that I sold some action. And if I didn't do that, then it would have been even better. Uh and then the the downswing that I went on, it was not really that big of a downswing in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you guys have probably had guests on this podcast who have lost the same amount in a session, but it ended up being like about a $50,000 downswing and not too bad because, you know, it was right off the tail of a huge, probably a hundred K upswing in the month or two before. And then I made about half of it back immediately after the downswing. And so in terms of, you know, dollar amounts, nothing 
too heavy, but you have to remember that I was not very far into my poker career at this point. I was basically broke the year before. And then for two years before that, I was working minimum wage in restaurants. I was making 10 bucks an hour. And so to, to lose 50K in a month, it was just pretty crazy. Like I couldn't really comprehend the the money at the time. So I went on this big downswing for me. And uh, I don't think that, the, you know, looking back that the downswing was really what caused me to burn out. I think that that played a role for sure. If I just kept winning, I probably would not have experienced this really difficult period until later. Um, but it accelerated it for sure. I think that the main problem was that I just had no work-life balance at all. And I was completely isolated. So when I first started playing full-time, I was living with my brother, Nick. We lived together for a few months. And then after that, you know, once I got to mid stakes and I had more money, I moved out and I started traveling around the country and I would just get an Airbnb for a month or two months in different cities. And I was living in all these different cities that uh, I didn't know anybody there. So I had no life really. I would just like work out, play poker, and that was it. And it was totally isolated. And I wasn't really dealing with any of the the negative emotions that were coming up through poker. And I think that is what really caught up to me is that I had all of these kind of emotions that I was just pushing down and uh, it doesn't work long-term. They always come back <laughs> to get you. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after my downswing, I made a little bit of the money back. I think I made about half of it back. And then I just continued to break even for another month or two. Again, in the grand scheme of things, not even that bad in terms of variance. Like I really wish I had somebody at that point to sit me down and just like show me the math and show me that this this downswing is nothing really in the grand scheme of things. I think I was just used to winning a little bit too much and too quickly. And it seemed pretty severe to me, but it actually wasn't. It's was pretty normal variance. And that's why I've written a lot of the articles on variance that I have try to give people a better understanding of what sort of downswings and, and break-even stretches that you should expect. But at a certain point, I just burnt out and I just couldn't play anymore. It felt like every time I would sit down to play a session, I would just have severe anxiety. And I had this feeling like the total opposite of what I'd been feeling up to that point. The feeling that I was having now is that I was expecting to lose. I was just expecting everything to go badly. Even if a session started out good, if I like started out up two buy-ins, it was just like, okay, how am I going to lose this back? I'm, I'm probably going to end up break even or worse on this session. Let's see how it happens. And yeah, so that was a really bad mindset to be in. I don't recommend that anybody plays poker when they're feeling like that. So I ended up just taking a big break, which I think it is a really good solution. Sometimes you just have to take a month or two off from the game it can be just really demanding on your mindset and sometimes you just do really need a reset and so i did that and i didn't actually end up taking a complete break from poker but in, in that three-month period i created the mobius poker journal to 
to really just like, you know, solidify my strategy and to kind of remove all of the, as much doubt from my thought process as I could. And so that, that did end up leading to something really good because, you know, we ended up using that as the, the main course for poker detox CFP later on. Yeah. So during this time, we can see a lot of factors compounding. It's the isolation. It's the lack of life balance. It's the, maybe the short-term swings where you've, you've risen for the ranks quite quickly and you maybe not experienced some of the financial swings uh, relative to the, the stakes that you've played. And then you've almost hit like a moment where you're like, right, I need to uh, re-examine stuff. So uh, you've started journaling. What are some of the other changes you made to get yourself back on track? Anything else that you did at that moment in time? Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't really, I, I don't think that I, I handled it, uh, the best way that I could looking back. I think actually looking back, I didn't really handle it. I distracted myself by creating this poker course for a few months. And, and really what I did was I just continued to push the emotions down and that can work, you know, for short periods of time. Um, and then I ended up sort of coming back to poker, um, mainly when the when COVID hit. And it was like, you just have to be playing right now because the games were so good. But mostly I started focusing on coaching after that. So it actually took me a while before I felt comfortable at the tables again and, and not anxious. Um, so. You know, I I think that I didn't really handle it very well. Um, and actually, about a year after that, late 2020, uh, this was a, a difficult time for a lot of people, I think, because of COVID and lockdowns. I had an even bigger rock bottom. So that was truly the like the worst uh, period for my mental health. I've struggled a lot with depression in my life. Um, I've written about this a little bit on my blog, but I would like to talk about it more in the future. It's um, it's kind of a difficult thing to talk about because usually when I write things like on my blog, I tend to write things that I feel like I've figured out um, and I've gotten through it and I want to share with other people. But with depression, I don't think you really ever totally figure it out. Like you don't actually know if you're out of the woods. It's just sort of a journey that I've been on and, and that I think I've made some good progress with it. And it's not really about figuring it out or beating it. Um, it's just about making progress. Um, and so I became a lot more depressed uh, in late 2020. And that's when I actually really started taking my mental health a lot more seriously and there were a bunch of things that i i did to help myself a lot with that and i can go into those but the, the main theme was that i actually started processing emotions instead of just pushing everything down mm. yeah i think this is a great segue to uh, 
open up the conversation about mental health in poker in general and using your experience as a gateway in there. So as you mentioned, this kind of suppression of emotion, very common for poker players to uh, have very good logical prefrontal cortex, they'll rationalize everything and they'll get good at pushing emotions down to some degree. As you mentioned, when things were kind of bubbling up, you still distracted yourself and went to something else cognitively and didn't deal with these emotions. I think a lot of poker players can relate to this um, not really understanding emotions and not allowing themselves to uh, deal with emotions and express them and uh, come to terms with them. So for yourself, what were some of the uh, early signs that, wait a second, I need to do some work here? And what were some of the um, practices or things you had to do to uh, gain more understanding of your mental health during this time? Yeah, it definitely wasn't processing things. And it was kind of happening on both fronts. It was happening in life and on the tables. So. If I would have a bad session, I would lose a lot of money and feel bad about losing. I wouldn't actually sit there and, you know, feel those emotions. I would just try to push it down, uh, just ignore it and, and distract myself with something. And the same thing would happen in life. Like if I would feel bad about something, you know, that was happening in my life, I would just try to distract myself from it. Uh, I think uh, probably a, a lot of poker players deal with the same thing. I mean, poker is just really brutal on your mental health for a lot of reasons. So even if you don't have like pre-existing conditions, you're probably going to deal with this at some point if you're a professional poker player. Um, I remember just last year around this time, it was so weird. Like it seemed like everybody that I was working with was just really going through it all at the same time. So I think this is like a, a very common thing in poker for a lot of reasons. Um, the, the thing that I started doing in late 2020 after my like real mental health rock bottom, uh, well, there were three things basically. And I just, I, I got to a point with my depression where I couldn't tell myself that I was handling it well anymore. Like I couldn't really um, make the case that I was able to, to, to deal with this on my own. It just got bad enough that I realized that I needed to reach out to other people for help. And that was the big shift for me was I stopped like keeping everything inside and I actually started talking about it. So, um, the, the first thing that I did was I, I started taking a medication. I was on a medication for about a year, um, I experimented with one drug, which was terrible for me. And then I luckily just found another drug, which was like a miracle drug for me. And then that really just like kind of reset my brain. It got me out of this sort of uh, hole that I was in and, and allowed me to sort of reset. Um, the other thing that I started doing was I started going to therapy and started talking about this, this stuff a lot more with a therapist. And I did that weekly for about two and a half years. I only recently stopped going to therapy just because I felt kind of good enough to stop. And then didn't just talk about it with therapists, but I also talked about it with my close family and friends. So I kind of like stopped hiding my depression from other people. And that really helped uh, quite a lot as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I know it must have been very challenging to uh, go through something where you can't find the answers. I know as poker players, we're used to uh, 
trying to find that definite solution, that right way, and quantifying stuff. I know you've come from a quantifying back, background as well, with emotions, with feelings, with our mental health. Sometimes it's like there's just no empath or no clear direction. And we, we just need to be vulnerable to open up, to share our experience, to listen to people, to uh, seek advice when we can as well. So it sounds like you were doing all that, which has definitely helped, which is, which is great. Uh, I'm interested to know, you mentioned a lot of poker players around you having mental kind of health problems at the same time, and that most poker players will have challenges with it. What are some of the challenges about poker that makes mental health a challenge for them? And what can they do to start maybe protect themselves against some of the uh, negative consequences? Poker is an incredibly isolating career. I, I don't really know of too many other jobs that are like this where, I mean, if you think about it, you don't have a boss, you don't have any coworkers, except maybe for the people that you study with. Um, and you don't have customers or employees. <laughs> and if you play online poker, you don't even see the people that you're playing with. So it's really just you. And if you wanted to, I mean, you could just stay in your bedroom forever and go out and get groceries and that's it. You just play poker. You don't have to talk to anybody. And I think some poker players actually do this. I think it's a good exercise to ask yourself, if you're an online poker player, why did you get into this profession? It, maybe it wasn't a mistake that you just chose like one of the most isolating professions you could possibly choose. Maybe you actually kind of like uh, being isolated and avoiding people. Maybe it feels a little bit safer for you. But you know, we we know like it's a very documented fact that isolation really messes with people's heads. Um, if you take it to the extreme, like a solitary confinement, I think you know, it's one of the fastest ways to, to drive somebody kind of crazy. So the isolation is a, a really difficult part. I think also you are kind of working the graveyard shift. Uh, usually you're playing nights, you kind of have to be working when other people are playing like recreational players are just playing poker for enjoyment. Um, I think that can be hard on mental health. And then also just the financial uncertainty. So just the swings uh, is just really difficult to deal with too. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I'm not a professional, but I, I'm just kind of sharing what's worked for me. And, uh, you know, certain medications have worked for me in the past um, and therapy as well. Just really like figuring out how to talk about it and actually process these emotions and open up about them. Because I think that depression is, it's sort of like a negative spiral. That's what I, that's how I think about depression. Mm. You often have a lot of this negative self-talk and negative thoughts, and they just are able to spiral inside your own head and go unchallenged. And they just get kind of worse and worse if you don't challenge them. And so anything that sort of breaks you out of that gets you talking to somebody else maybe who can challenge those thoughts that you're having or sometimes a drug can do this where it just gives you a different perspective on you know this is not the only way that I can look at my life there are other ways um all of that is really good for just breaking out of it yeah I think the way you spoke about that as well it's about breaking free the narratives that you're trapped in in your own mind 
And as you mentioned, the kind of factors of isolation, often the late night grinding and being on weird routines, dealing with extreme financial pressures and financial swings, all these things can compound to uh, you being very trapped in your own frame of reference. And a lot of poker players who, who end in the situation don't know where to turn because you're already stuck in your own head. So uh, as you've mentioned, whether it's a drug, whether it's therapy, whether it's just speaking, whether it's a journal, some form of getting out of your own form of reference and getting other perspectives in as well. I always think as well, when you're stuck in your own narrative very often just other people to speak about your situation so for you was there anyone obviously you said th therapy was useful was there any other perspectives that were helpful for you was there any forms of therapy that you found useful or any way where you could bring other perspectives into your narrative that were helpful for you during this time um i sort of did kind of everything um i just like threw everything at it um so that was meditation, it was therapy, um, medication for a little while. And I think probably therapy was the thing that helped me the most. And my therapist didn't really like assign himself to any particular type of therapy. Um, so I can't really give, you know, a specific type of therapy that worked for me. Uh, there is a book that I really like. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, it's called uh, the courage to be disliked. I was blanking on the name for a second there, but it's um, that book is more based on Adlerian psychology, um, which I think is really interesting. It's kind of a, a bit the opposite of Freudian psychology. So if you if you have read about that and it didn't really resonate with you, that book might uh, be a better fit for you. I would recommend just like doing, just trying to do as much as you can. So that's for me that was living a healthy lifestyle um i don't really drink or do any drugs um i work out a lot i meditate a lot and also doing the therapy and and then the i think the final step is to try to build a stronger community around you if you are dealing with a lot of this isolation at some point you are just going to have to go out and make more friends um so it's it's not like, I'm sure you you know this, and it's not like a quick fix. It's just, a, it has to be, if this is something that you deal with a lot, it has to be like a complete lifestyle change, unfortunately. But yeah. it can be for the best in the long term. Yeah, and I think as you've mentioned, like there's lots of small things you can do. And often lifestyle factors play a big role, whether it's sleep quality, time outdoors, uh, exercise, meditation, uh, social time with friends, all these things are lifestyle changes you can make quite quickly to uh, see some sort of impact in your physiology and physical states. Then there's going deeper into your into therapy to understand the root causes of emotional states. It's creating a peer group around you. So as you said, there's lots of things to do and it's uh, ongoing work, but it's as humans, we are quite complex. We need uh, lots of moving parts to function at our best. And I think it's really good to bring this conversation forwards because I think a lot of players listening to this might relate to uh, maybe going down a bit of a slide where things, their mood's changing. They're not experiencing as much joy in poker or in life i think that's kind of the warning signs when you're struggling to find enjoyment in other things as well as poker and i think you end up numbing more and more of your emotional responses and you struggle to feel as much and this this can definitely lead to a depressive state or at least less of an enjoy, enjoyment state so yeah, i think it's hopefully 
players listening to this will start to exploring some avenues if they are experiencing that. And as you mentioned, like it is just tough. Being a poker player is challenging. It comes with unique things. Like the isolation part, you can't really get around that unless you uh, live with other players. Even still, you've got more isolation than a normal job. So yeah, I think it's bringing attention to it and you need to make lots of changes for a long period of time. And the good news is you feel better. So uh, for yourself, I'm curious to know, uh, as you've started to make these changes, how have you noticed a shift in how you felt and how has that impacted maybe your poker career and other things you've been doing as well? Oh, I mean, well, when I think about how I feel now compared to two years ago, it's it's completely different. Um, I just feel a lot lighter in general, I would say. Like I'm not carrying as much baggage around with me day to day. Um, I do still, obviously, like there are tougher days too where I'm not feeling as happy and I, I I do still still deal with depression and sometimes it's harder because now when these negative feelings come up I try to deal with them immediately instead of just pushing them back down so some days are really challenging in the short term but in the long term you just kind of this compounds and you do start to feel a lot lighter um, and it just has sort of a synergistic effect on your whole life where you know your mindset is better um you start sleeping better maybe you start exercising more and then that leads to even more energy and more energy and it's sort of like once you can get the ball rolling it's easier to stay on track how have you learned to uh, deal with your emotions as they come up you mentioned you're being more proactive on dealing with as they arise what are some of the things you've had to do differently or change in your approach to uh, dealing with moment-to-moment -moment emotions, whether it's frustration, anxiety, or even depression? Uh, just mindfulness, I guess, would be the main thing. So if I am feeling really anxious about something, I will journal about it or do a meditation, or sometimes I'll even video journal. So I'll just turn my webcam on my computer. Like if I you know, can't talk to my therapist in that moment, I will just talk to my webcam in a video journal. And um, it's amazing how well that works sometimes. Um, or talk to somebody else about it. You know, I'll just say that if you're a poker player who is going through something like this and you open up to even just another poker player in your study group or something, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to get an extremely positive response from that because you know in general we like people are very receptive when somebody opens up about things like this especially now i think the stigma is getting it's you know getting a lot uh better and people are not stigmatizing depression as much but poker players especially are probably going through the same thing that you are so if you are able to just open up to somebody even on discord or something just I think you'll be really surprised when you do start opening up about it. Um, you're just going to have this experience of like, well, why was I hiding this from people? There's no reason to be hiding this. Um, and that's kind of how I look back at my past self that didn't want to talk about any of this stuff. It, it just, you know, it, I don't really know why or how I learned to hide it, but 
doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like just because you're depressed, it, it doesn't make you any lesser of a person. You know, even if you have serious depression, like let's say you're dealing with uh, suicidal thoughts. Um, if you open up about that, I, I think you'll realize like, yes, that does mean that you do have pretty serious mental health issues that you have to deal with, but it doesn't make you weird or crazy or any lesser of a person. Like a lot of people deal with suicidal thoughts. It's not just you. And, you know, if you, if you believe that it's just you, that that's just only going to make it a lot worse. Um, so yeah, well, just the last thing I, I will, will sort of a caveat that I, I want to add is that I'm obviously not a professional about any of this stuff. Like I'm just somebody who's gone through it. And every time I write about this on my blog or Twitter, I always get like a lot of people DMing me and I'm always happy to respond to DMs about this. Like my DMs are open. Um, but if you can, if you have the motivation to open up, sometimes that, that that is like a small window of opportunity. And so if you can, I would suggest reaching out to a professional um, before you reach out to, to just like DMing me or, or something. Do whatever you're comfortable with. But if you can do it, there are a lot of resources, especially now, like you can go on BetterHelp and... Uh, that's a website that'll hook you up with a therapist really quickly. It's like not that hard at all. Um, there's another service that some of my students have used. It's called Healthy Gamer. I'm not sure uh, how big that that site is yet, but I, I've heard good things about it. Um, so I think doing that is the best place to start because that will get you in touch with a professional who's actually like can really help you. Um, so yeah, do that if you can, but, um, you know, my DMs are open if people want to discuss this stuff. Thank you. I'm sure people will appreciate both of those options, the DMs and the, uh, which is the therapist as well. And yeah, I think it's amazing how uh, much sharing your experience with others helps. I think from both avenues, one, not bottling up your own experience. So you're going through it alone, but also uh, there's something about realizing other people are going through similar experiences. Myself, I do group coaching and it's always amazing when one player opens up and shares something he's going through that four or five other players go, yeah, me too. I'm also experiencing this. And they have this moment where it's a realization going, wow, like I really thought it was just me. I thought I was alone on this journey and you guys are literally having the same problems I am. And as you mentioned, obviously we're individuals, we have different states, different things we go through, but we share a very common experience of being a poker player. There's very similar kind of uh, psychological stresses we're going through, similar challenges. We're trying to deal with it with certain coping mechanisms. I think when players start to share their journey and what they're going through with other players, they quickly realize they're not alone. I think that's also a big, big help. Uh, you mentioned as well, kind of hiding parts of yourself. There's some great work by Carl Jung, who's like an old psychologist, and he's got a, a theory called like the shadow, your shadow side, which is a part of your side you don't want to uh, kind of acknowledge. And it's almost like the more you can hide this shadow from the world, the more you create problems because this is trying to, the shadow is always trying to come to the surface. And the more we have parts of ourselves which we dislike, whether it's depression, whether it's states, and we try to hide that, the more this kind of shadow side becomes a problem going forward. So uh, the integration of the things you're going through, and as you mentioned, doing it with, with a therapist would be the, the best way to really explore these things and go, right, what is, what am I trying to hold back? How can I bring this more to the front? And how can I do some work to uh, 
give myself coping mechanisms to deal with this. And as you mentioned as well, like it's not about getting to a finish line. It's more about how do I live a good experience of life, moving towards my goals and have coping strategies when things go challenging for me. How do I have some things I can do to get myself back on track, to make myself feel good? It doesn't mean every day you feel amazing. There's ups and downs like all of us. Abby, I think understanding yourself better will give you tools to do that. Hi guys, Renee aka The Wacko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program, you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now, one of these, of course, is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play, with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now, on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. So I want to transition a little bit to um, strategy versus mindset. And I know you do a lot of good work in this area, so I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. What are some things that come to mind that are common leaks you see in players that they think are strategic leaks, but they actually come from mindset leaks? Oh, um, well, I, I think like the most common leaks in poker in general are passive leaks. because It's just really hard to play as aggressively as a solver does uh, in most spots anyway. I think um, a lot of times people will come up with, <laughs> they'll become like a Nobel Prize winning scientist about justifying why they should fold in a certain spot or coming up with all these reasons why it's correct to not bluff in a particular spot. Um, when you know they obviously don't do the opposite they don't come up with reasons like that for why they should call or raise or or bluff in a, a particular spot and so that's something that i see happen a lot i'm like doing a database review with a player and showing him that he systematically under bluffs the river for example and then we'll look at specific spots and i'll show him you know this is not only is this a, a pure bluff in theory but I think uh, the the data would show that people overfold in this spot, and they'll be like, "Yeah, but I don't like this texture. I think uh, 
you know, he he'll check a lot of strong hands on this turn and then on the river he's going to defend too much and blah 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 so that's kind of um that's that's what i see happen often is we have a cognitive bias generally to play risk averse and then we make a lot of justifications in game to you know allow ourselves to play more passively because it's easier yeah i've noticed that very often as well and i think it goes both ways you can get the aggressive person as well who uh, justifies every bluff justifies always going at stuff but as you mentioned it's, it's interesting because the mind's so good at rationalizing that these players come up with really elaborate stories and they almost sound convincing if you didn't have the data to kind of disprove them and it's almost like there's your emotion takes precedence you feel risk aversion in that moment so you'll be passive but then the mind comes up with all these gymnastic tricks to uh, try to justify and rationalize why you're doing this. So uh, let's say this player that you've mentioned, let's say you've shown him that he's being very passive and he's got a tendency to be risk averse. You've shown the data and you go, look, the GTO would be bluffing more here and the population overfolds. How do you get this person to, first of all, get on board with the realization that they, they've got a tendency here that's coming from a risk aversion, a mindset leak. And then how do you start working to eradicate that leak in practice? You can't get somebody on board they that's ultimately as a coach there's like a limit to what you can do so somebody really has to want to improve and hopefully if you they're already sort of bought into your coaching and if you show them enough evidence they'll believe what you're saying to be correct and they'll put a little bit of faith in you the way that i approach it is uh, my coaching is it's very heavy on database reviews so when I work with players, we do a database review every month. And if they're overfolding in a certain spot, I will check up with them on that frequency, whether, you know, let's say it's the, their river fold frequency. If it's 58 and we need to get it to 48 every month, we're checking that frequency. And if it's not at 48, then we're looking at specific hands, specific examples of spots where they may have overfolded. And so that accountability and the concrete data of the stat check, I think, are the two most important things. But it really comes down to the student in the end. And I think that's a big thing that separates the high performers from the low performers is that the you could tell a low performer that they have a, a leak four months in a row and they might not fix it. Whereas some of the best players that I work with, they're just like, obsessive about plugging their leaks and if you show them that they have a leak that leak is not going to be around for very long it might last two weeks and then it's gone and they've plugged it yeah as you mentioned you can only show them what to do at some points uh but yeah, i think often when you're a student and you're having coaching from someone like yourself you're already bought into your philosophy you're showing the data which gives them that concrete evidence of the strategy and then from there you give them the guidance on how to change it and then from there as you said it comes down to uh, the student to change that you mentioned cognitive biases as well which i think is a very fascinating area to explore what are some of the cognitive biases you've explored or you've, you've seen in poker players that again players think are strategic leaks but are actually just a bias that's leading them to uh, deviate their strategy from in mindset leak my favorite book is thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman i think that book kind of shaped my career because it it exposed me to all this whole world of cognitive biases for the first time and i just found it to be so 
interesting that we think that we're rational, but humans are not rational at all. And in fact, we are predictably irrational. So our intuition, it's good for a lot of things, but it can reliably steer us in the wrong direction in certain areas. And so you can never actually, I don't think you can ever totally overcome this. Your cognitive biases are just built in sort of to like the infrastructure of your brain. It's just how your brain works, but you can understand them and get better at, you know, creating systems to, uh, mitigate you know the 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 consequences of some of these cognitive biases so risk aversion is i think the biggest one that comes to mind uh, that i just discussed another one is loss aversion just similar but it's um, essentially the idea that your losses hurt more than your wins feel good <laughs> so i think it's generally estimated that um if you lose a dollar for most people, it's going to feel about twice as painful as winning $1 would feel good. So if you win a dollar and then you lose a dollar, you end up with this sort of emotional deficit. And one of my articles on my blog, I wrote about loss aversion. I actually quantified this. And so the, the way that I did this was I added up all the pots that I won and all of the pots that I lost over uh, my first year of playing poker. So in that year, I made, I don't know, something like $150,000, something in that range. It ended up being that I, my one pots were, I think it was about 2.1 million. And then my lost pots were like 1.95 million. And so my winnings were 5% more than my losses, which is a big problem if the losses hurt twice as much as the wins, right? And so that I think that comes back to, you know, this is not really like a technical thing, but it comes back to again the importance of processing your losses because they are going to hurt more than your wins. And even if you're a profitable poker player, it's going to just be inherently stressful and you just have to like deal with the suckage of that cognitive bias. Um, and if you don't process your losses um, if you just you know push down the negative emotions instead of finding a way to release them in a healthy way that's just going to accumulate over time and then i think you're you're sort of inevitably heading towards a burnout like the one that i experienced at the end of 2019 yeah great book to read for anyone to uh, explore how the mind works and how we think in two different systems and yeah i think with biases it's one of those Understanding is a big part of it. Just realizing this, the way the brain works is going to lead to certain shortcuts that lead to uh, certain ways of thinking, like the risk aversion. We're not going to do much about that in terms of the hardwire, but your understanding of how it affects you can really help you going forwards. Some of the ones I see very often are confirmation bias, where we'll generally uh, see a, a result and then we'll confirm our action was good. Let's say you made a bluff on a river and he folds. You're like, yes, great play. Or if he calls, you're like, I'm an idiot. And you use a, a one data point to uh, confirm whether it was a good decision rather than using your overall strategy. And players fall for this all the time and they'll, they'll kind of use a very small sample size to uh, yeah, confirm if they're doing well, if their strategies went in. Even if you look at results, a lot of results are confirmation bias. You're having a good week, your, your graph's on a heater. And you're like, yes, I'm great at poker. Again, you're using confirmation bias or if you're on a downswing, you get too attached to it. Again, understanding that 
how that works is importance. A projection bias is another one. I see players do this in terms of this player should have done this. You project your strategy onto him. So you do a bet and your opponent should fold and he calls. And then you start going, he's an idiot. He shouldn't have done that. And you're projecting mm -hmm. what you should have done to him. So yeah, there's lots of interesting errors here where they seem like strategic leaks, but in reality, it's the mind that's sort of playing some tricks or doing some shortcuts, which leads to a division strategy. I think players exploring these, which ones, myself and Rene going back and forth on this in terms of trying to understand a player's strategic leaks compared to his mindset leaks and where's the kind of interplay between the two. Um, actually, it's a good time to pass to you, Rene. What are some of the, um, you've done a lot of thinking in this area. What are some of the, as you've noticed that players think are strategic where it's really disguised as something different yeah you see that i think most i mean we've done a lot of work on that uh on the river with like bluff catching and bluffing that's just naturally where i think it most comes out and all the all the things people invent the the very classic uh blocker unblocker story i think that's that's the best one that people tell themselves whereas mm -hmm. for the people listening like in in solverland blockers and unblockers they make they make the difference between something being plus EV or minus EV because you know the edges that we're very close to equilibrium so removing one card out of a range of 200 combos is gonna shift the strategy being plus EV minus EV whereas in practice it doesn't really work like that unless you play in a four bat pot where let's say there's only 30 combos in play then sure if you hold Three, if you hold a combo that removes three combos, that's a significant impact. But for the most part, let's say you play blind versus blind, you face a bad check bat, and you're like, yeah, I wouldn't call, I would only call her if I had third pair with a club or with a higher card, lower card. It's it's not going to make a difference. You're 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 finding an excuse to do what you already wanted to do in the first place, which was to fold. Like uh, Patrick also mentioned that usually main population tendencies is under aggressing and overfolding due to a natural risk aversity. Um, so yeah, that's, I think the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, we, we've done a lot of work on that uh, together as well from both to, to address both river bluffing and bluff catching from mental game and technical game. I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting topic for sure. Yeah. There's so many biases and another one that comes to mind based on the, what you just said is, uh, hypothesizing after the results are known i call it the harking for short that's this is something that i talk about a lot with my students because uh something that'll happen a lot if you're studying with other players is you'll be discussing a spot like is this combo a good combo to bluff with and then you have a big discussion then you look at the solve and this the solver says yes this is a good combo if you have a club here you should bluff if you you don't have a club you shouldn't bluff sometimes that's obvious why it's happening but a lot of times it's not obvious at all and so um often what will happen is people will start hypothesizing about why that club is so important but it doesn't really matter because you're doing this from the perspective of like knowing the answer already and so if you're just sort of guessing but why this blocker is so important. Uh, people will spend 30 minutes on a call just talking about this one spot. And it's like, this isn't really helping you because how are you going to actually translate this into something real when you're playing and you don't have the solver telling you what the right answer is? Um, you know, I think it's just, it's best to just focus on the really 
fundamental properties of card removal and not worry about um, the the really strange ones uh, unless you can really scientifically approach it and figure out exactly why these blocker effects are happening. It's usually better to just say, look, GTO is impossible. This probably isn't that important of a thing and and just not worry about it. I think also another common one would be to, especially, you know, because in 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 Silverland, a lot of things are going to be a frequency and then they see, oh yeah, you see at least 10% of the time when, when it happens 10% of the time and they want it to happen, they say, well, at least it's happened 10% of the time. And when they don't want it to happen 10% of the time, they say, but it's only happening 10% of the time. It's the same, it's the same, it's the same output, but they can use it or justify their actions. They can interpret it in a different way. Pick another one, actually, depending on when this comes out, we did a other podcast. Uh, we, we talked about, this was actually a PLO player. I'm hyping it now a little bit. I don't know if it already came out or not, depending on when we upload this. Uh, but he mentioned a lot that in PLO specifically, you have to reevaluate the strength of your hand on every street because there's a lot of equity switching going on 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 turn river because you know you hold four cards instead of two, and in Hold'em you can it's like a I think they call it like a hooking bias. You hook on the strength of your hand, and you and therefore you don't take in consideration further new information. Let's say you flop a set, and you're like oh flop a set, gonna stack this guy. But then the board runs out very bad. The action is also very bad. That makes your hand, I don't know, a lot, your hand relatively is no longer as strong as it was in the flop, but you're already hooked on the hand strength. You're already celebrating that you're going to win a stack. And now suddenly the guy jams or re-raises you and you have no longer, you're already hooked on, on the fact that you're going to stack off. And now you have no longer room for new information to come in to realize that your hand is now actually just a fault. I think there's another very common bias that uh, that I see. Um but yeah, I, I was listening uh, silently on the sideline when you guys were talking about uh, um, the mental health issues. I cannot say that I've ever suffered from depression, but I have had my fair share of mental health history, uh, mental health, you could say, problems. Um, I, think I, I usually live with more as mental game struggles. And I feel like, and Adam, you, I'm going to phrase it more as a question as well. I feel like some players are just naturally sensitive to mental game problems. And other players naturally are less sensitive to mental game problems. Does this make sense? Because it doesn't really seem like in every state that I am in my life or in my career, I seem to stumble up mental game issues. doesn't matter if I'm, if I'm at the top of my career, bottom of my career, middle of a career, playing or not playing. It doesn't matter. There's always something. Does that mm. make sense? Am I just uh, sensitive to mental game shit? No, I think you're right. I think obviously humans vary a lot and some people have just better frameworks of processing emotions, dealing with um, almost like something like the interplay between your emotions and your cognition. I think that's kind of the, the main skill to uh, have less mindset troubles. And if you have issues with mindset, like, like you said, it's, it gets kind of pronounced in certain areas. So for you, for example, I'm sure playing poker was probably the most extreme mindset kind of issues to work on, but then it also shows up in other areas where there's, there's kind of high stress or lots on the line. But yeah, I think obviously there's a lot of variance between players. I do think some players are more vulnerable, but overall I do feel almost everyone needs to work on mindset. I see that very biased as a mindset coach, but I do feel like there's not many people who are just like, right, from day one, I've got a mindset built for poker, throw it at me. I'm, I'm ready, I can take it all. 
it's just such a challenging occupation where you just need to de develop tools and skill sets to deal with very challenging situations, whether it was Patrick's example of losing 50K after having zero money, then losing large amounts. It's the, like, like you mentioned, the isolation, the dealing with the unknown variables of, am I playing a good strategy? Am I winning? The challenging competition day to day, having to be on top of your game. So yeah, I think there's just lots of things you have to learn to develop on that journey. And yeah, maybe some guys, maybe I've not met these people who are just really, really just made for it from day one, but generally you're building skills and building tools on the job. And I think if you approach poker in the right way, hopefully you'll come out of poker with a much better mindset, a much healthier mindset. Yes, disease kind of mental health issues that we need to address with isolation and the unique poker problems. But yeah, I think poker is a great landscape to actually explore your mental health, but also to uh, develop a mental toolkit. So would you say for yourself, Rene, how you've, you've built more of a mental toolkit since playing poker? You, you see your mindset stronger now than when you began? Yeah, for sure. But sometimes I get a bit tired of the fact that every time where you feel like, you feel like, you know, you arrive to a new place where it's like, now I got it all figured out. Or, you know, it's like, it's like the illusion where, well, now, now I have it solved. Now I understand the problem. But then a new problem arises or something similar or you know, you lose awareness a little bit and suddenly the old problem comes from behind and it detects you again. It's like, oh, I, I, I thought I dealt with you already. What, what what, the hell are you doing here again? You know, this is something that, that I experienced a lot. Like, for example, throughout my career, I, I suffered not as much anymore, but still, like I said, still things can come back depending on the phase that you're in. But I struggled a lot with recession anxiety. And I noticed that it had a lot to do with the meaning that I gave to situations that I didn't know what to do, making mistakes, losing. I kind of gave the meaning to that, that me, I was not good enough to, to, to play or I would not beat the games. So imagine if anytime you go out to play and you find yourself in a spot where you don't know what to do or make a mistake, aka every fucking session you play or every, you could even say every 10 minutes that you play. If then I start to feel insecure, and that basically takes me out of the flow. And therefore, at some points, I had to just stop my session early because there was just too much insecurity. Yeah, that's a problem. So when you go in, and I noticed like when I when I changed my meaning to that, when I realized that like, oh, wait, I'm afraid that I'll find myself in a situation where I don't know what to do. Well, guess what? That's going to happen. And I changed my meaning to that. That kind of started to lose its, its power. So that's when like pre-session anxiety for me started to lose. Also... I think the meaning that you give to losing or how important winning is, I think uh, Patrick can probably relate to this. Uh, I've also uh, coached students and all the students that performed badly were all guys who were under financial pressure. This was, this is for my, for me, is the best indicator of someone not going to succeed when they're under financial pressure, because then losing hurts too much. They're too emotionally involved. They're afraid to lose. And then it becomes sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. As Patrick also said, Good, good winning poker is usually aggressive poker. Full class, go all in a lot, right? It's exactly what you meant. Let's say, for example, you're in a spot where you just shove your stack in. It usually happens like three bet pots, four bet pots, big pots where the SPR is small. Your bet maybe only has to work 35, 40% of the time, which means the majority of the time you're going to shove your stack and you're going to get called and you lose your stack. It, feel, it, feels, it doesn't feel like winning, right? Because the, the, exactly what you said, the, hurt, the losses hurt more than the winnings. So it takes, it takes a different type of mindset. And if you have that attachment towards losing, then you're going to try to prevent losing, which actually makes losing a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're going to play more passive poker and miss up on very good plus V spots, lowering your win rate, making losing actually more likely. So it's, the mind is an interesting 
is an interesting thing and often uh and often a trap i i also what you mentioned about the emotion actually adam recommended me a very good book that i will now recommend as well um the hawkins guy surrender letting go what was the name of the book again adam Let, letting go Letting Go by David Hawkins, Dr. David yeah, Hawkins. Very, very excellent book, in my opinion. It helped me personally a lot. And I was also starting to, I got pointed out on a certain loop that I was in. Let's say, for example, I play a session and I made a lot of mistakes or I lost. I felt bad, okay? Which is quite normal. Especially for me when I then feel uncertainty. Like I said, if there's a lot of spots that I feel like I'm a bit lost, I don't know what to do. Uncertainty comes up and I don't like the feeling of uncertainty. So then what I do, I go in massive strategy development, right? I dig in. Maybe you can relate to this, especially when it comes down to data. Data offers certainty in a very uncertain world. And I don't like the feeling of uncertainty. So what do you do? You look up the data to get certainty, which on one side, I think has helped me a lot in my career because therefore I've spent a lot of time studying. I've spent a lot of time, for example, preparing every day before I would jump into a game. Nowadays, a bit less than in the past. So like I said, it has its ups and downs, but especially in the past, because of this anxiety, I was over-prepared every time I played. And guess what? I knew everything, or at least I knew a lot of everyone. So I was never caught off guard. I was never not on, a, on, on my A game. So that had the benefit. However, obviously, if you want to be in your A game all the time, you cannot really play a lot of volume if you need A game to play. So that was kind of a problem. And the problem is, for example, I couldn't continue playing because if uncertainty built up to a certain place, I had to resolve that and I had to resolve that with strategy. And I, and I, in your story, this big downswing that you then, I think, made the Mobius journey you said, it sounded very similar to something that I would do. Things go bad. I lock myself into a room. I go over every spot, write out my strategy again. So I have clarity, I have certainty. And then, but basically I just need to do that for two weeks. So I have... So my certainty is at a level that I can basically play again, which I realized at some point is a problem. So nowadays, what I will do way more, if I lose, I'll be like, okay, just, just sit, sit with the emotion of losing. How does it feel? And really, and really try to process it. Afterwards, I could still analyze, but I'm not analyzing anymore to remove the emotion. I'm analyzing actually because I think it's a good idea to analyze. And I noticed the same. I was always very proud of not checking my results. And I always felt like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a smart thing to do, right? But then I also noticed it was just avoidance. I didn't want to see that I lost because it would hurt too much. And I realized that only later, and I was always saying with pride, oh, I haven't looked at my result in one month. You know, I'm so process-oriented. It was bullshit. I was just avoiding the possible feeling of losing. And basically, if you just look only at your results every three months, the chance of you losing is, is quite small. So, like I said, it had benefits, but it also had downsides. because. If I really needed to be on my A game to perform, let's say, for example, I only slept for, I slept bad. I would just not play whole day. That's obviously a problem, right? So I feel like now both internally, like you can solve these things both internally and externally. I've done work on both. Uh, I don't know, like when I, when I talked about the data, do you, do you, can you relate with that? That data offers like a certain amount of certainty, which removes the uncertainty. So we're not dealing with the uncertainty. We just inject more certainty. Yeah, I've never really thought about it like that, um, but it does make a lot of sense. I, I tend to feel like I prefer studying over playing just because it gives me an opportunity to build something and discover things. 
and I can actually build a body of work, like a course, some sort of curriculum that I can look back on, whereas playing is more just like executing a strategy that I've already, you know, determined that I'm going to do. And all I have to look back on after I play is like, obviously money, that's good. And a graph, but that doesn't really matter very much to me. Like the graph, it doesn't do a lot for me. I know certain players that just absolutely love looking back at their graph after a year of crushing volume and and that gives them a lot of pleasure. It doesn't for me. But I do resonate a lot with what you said about um, tying yourself worth to your results and how that can really lead to a lot of performance anxiety. The amount that you tie yourself worth to you know how good of a poker player you are is proportional to how much stress you're going to experience when you lose. So I I think it's very good to recognize that. And that has helped me a lot with my performance anxiety too, is just really establishing that this one session, whatever the results are, it doesn't make me any better or worse of a poker player. Even though my monkey brain really wants to say that a winning day is a good day and a losing day is a bad day. An understanding of variance um, can help with this a lot too, is just really establishing in your brain that whatever the results of this session are, it's basically just noise. You've got maybe a 55% chance of winning and a 45% chance of losing. And so it doesn't really make any sense to tie yourself worth to that. In fact, it's actually very stressful and unproductive to do that. Um, I will say that the sort of doubt and the stress can be productive. Like you said, it seems like you understand that this is a motivating factor for you to improve. And so what is the alternative? Like, you know, if you, obviously it sucks that this is the way our brains work, that we have to feel these negative emotions in order to stimulate growth. But if the alternative is just that you never doubt yourself or any plays that you make and you just like basically stagnate and never get any better, that's not good either. So I think... A lot of players exist on this spectrum. I've got some players who who are my students who they can just crush volume, but they also don't seem to have as much attention to detail. And they're not really as good at fixing leaks typically as the people on the other end of the spectrum who don't play as much volume, but focus on studying a lot and they have a much stronger attention to detail and they're always questioning their actions. So I think there's a sweet spot. And if you're if you're on either end of the spectrum too much, I think you should do some work to get closer to the middle. I definitely feel like when I, for example, I, I, I studied a lot in poker in, in, in my CP for I think about two years after that when I started to play, because I became so conscious of all the possibilities and that the correct quote answer was really dependent on either this either that i remember when i would play it was so overwhelming in terms of well i see this spot well i can do this i can do that well that the this would be the best play depending on this this i basically i sort of it sounds a bit weird but i sort of knew too much and therefore i knew actually nothing in terms of i couldn't perform because there was just way too much stuff going on inside my head so sort of also accepting and and we will actually get, to, I want to actually talk about this topic in, in a second, like defining what your strategy is and sort of deciding on one route that you're going to take. 
instead of being in a situation well well there's various routes that i can take like off 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 game work i think it has definitely benefits because you're very open-minded and you can look at various possibilities so you will see lines or strategies that the other person might not see but if you don't decide before you play what your extra strategy is going to be it can bite you in the ass when you start playing i think also what you meant is interesting like Players who have more eye for detail. Let's say, for example, you play a session of two hours. You have two of your students, uh, both that you just described. One guy might have identified five mistakes or, yeah, one have identified five mistakes, where the other one who has more attention to detail might have identified 15. And maybe after two hours, he's like, well, I've identified 15 mistakes. I want to quit my session. I want to look at those mistakes. Where the other guy is just like, well, I've only made five mistakes and they were not so big. So he can just basically continue playing. Do do, do you feel like that's something that could be going on? Yeah. And honestly, I think probably the people who are easier on themselves have better chances of being successful in poker because a lot of the success in poker just comes from longevity. And as long as there are, are recreationals in your game, you're going to be profitable in that game. Like, like you said, you know, you feel self-conscious about playing if you didn't sleep well the night before. Um, probably that doesn't have as big of an impact if you're sitting at a table with one recreational player, you're probably going to be profitable in that game. I don't think, I don't know what your, your win rate is, Renee, but I, I don't, if it, let's say it's like seven big blinds for 100 or eight big blinds for 100, I don't think it's going to go negative uh down to three negative three big blinds for hundred just because you didn't sleep well that night. It sounds like a, um, it sick. sounds like exactly what Jared Tender told me back then. He says, "No, you have to implement." He said, "You see things too black as white. You either say that you're a crusher or you're a losing player." There's something in the middle as well. He told me. Yeah, definitely. but but and the interesting point a... he also said, he said, "So you're saying that because you slept bad that you're not going to perform well, but every time you sleep bad you don't play. How do you know?" that you're going to perform <laughs> bad if you never play when you when you don't sleep. And I was like, ah, good point. So I remember it was the same, for example, let's say you take a holiday break and afterwards you come back. I would need like a week at least to feel like a week of sort of preparation to feel like, okay, I can, I can perform again, right? And again, he said the same thing. He said, how do you know? He actually said, and this is actually good advice for people listening as well. When you come back for your holidays, actually the perfect time to just jump in and see what your C game looks like. Because they will point you out exactly the most uh, important areas for your game to improve. So I made a very big mind shift, both in the sleep at some point and also with the breaks. I would jump in. Aligning expectations, majorly important. Because if you expect to play your A game, guess what? You're going to get frustrated because most likely you're not. Whereas if you expect to play your C game, you actually might be surprised that you might actually start playing your A game. It's... Your expectation going in will really determine how, how your session is going to be. If you're going to say, listen, I'm going to be very rusty. I expect the minimum. And the minimum comes up. It's like, well, that was expected. If you perform a little bit better than the minimum, you're like, oh, I'm pleasantly surprised with how things went today. Uh, so I think aligning expectations is very important. And another thing that I think is very important that helped me a lot was instead of tracking outcome, like you said, obviously detaching your self-worth from the results, very important. Which actually also, maybe you can also relate to this. Uh, I usually ask this also as coaches, especially when I started to get coaching and started to go a bit more in the public. I suddenly, this is why I said, mental game prompts, somehow they always chase me. Every time a situation changes, a new problem comes up. It's very annoying. 
But so I started to put myself out there, just like you, right, as a coach. And then suddenly I started to notice that if I would be on a downswing, it would suddenly influence me way more because I felt like I needed to win to have credibility. And that kind of became like a self-fulfilling prophecy because like, oh shit, oh shit, I haven't been winning over the last 20k hands, 40k hands, whatever. I'm not running so well. And then I wanted, I started to play and I wanted to win because the winning was tied to sort of my credibility as a coach. So then what happens? Well, your your performance pressure increases, right? Your performance anxiety before you jump in your session increases. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're going to choke because the winning becomes too important to you. So as you can see, <laughs> mental game, it's an annoying thing. Uh, but what I wanted to say, and now I'll hand it over to you. So instead of tracking your results, but like I said, I found this more easily when it was just me because the outer world, if I show a graph where I'm break even in a hundred K hands, everyone is going to be like, and if I say variance, then everyone's going to be like, ah, you just suck, blah, blah, blah. How can you coach? Or at least that's the story that you tell in your head. Obviously the reality is, is way different, but to instead of results, track like certain KPIs, like you already mentioned, right? I do exactly the same. I look at my game. I identify certain leaks. I'll write like stat goals. I usually like to give like bronze, silver, gold. So let's say my river fold is 55. I want to get it to 50. I write down, okay, it's now 55. The aim is 50. That's the gold aim. I'll give 51 for silver and 52 for bronze or something. I'll do that for all the stats. And then after my session, I'll load in a filter, face riverbed. So after my session, I'll look at these hands. Because like you cannot look at river fold after your session because there's, let's say you played a thousand hands, river fold says nothing. So after the session, I'll look at the actual hands to see if I'm applying it correctly. And then after the month, I will look at my actual stat. And that way, if you have certain focus point for your session and after your session is done, you just evaluate your session or how your session went based on, did I do what I set out to do? Did I focus on my focus points? If the answer is yes, then who cares about the short-term result of the session? But you need to track something. I feel like if you don't track KPIs or you don't look at your results, yeah, you're going to want to see something, right? And then most people grab for, the, grab for the graph. And then basically you're putting how you've done, you're putting in the hands of the poker gods and the short-term variance. That seems like a problem. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, one other mindset shift that I've used for people who like, dwell on their mistakes way too much. Um, I think it's common, like let, let's say you sit down for a session and you get stacked really early in the session. And let's say you made a, you actually did make a big mistake and you got stacked and you, you say, okay, that mistake was, let's say it was a blunder, like 10 big blinds. And I think, I think it's common if your win rate is four big blinds per hundred, uh, people will think, oh, well, I just wiped out my win rate for the next 250 hands just with that one mistake. So now I just I have to play another 250 hands just to get even in expected value before I can start making money. That's not actually how it works. Your win rate, your your mistakes that you have made historically are built into your win rate already. So if your win rate is four, that is the sum of all of the good plays you've made and the bad plays that you've made. So I think it's a lot more productive to go into your session understanding that nobody plays perfectly and that you are going to make a lot of mistakes and that you have made mistakes in the past 
So you're going to continue probably to make mistakes. The only thing that you can really try to do is just make smaller mistakes and fewer mistakes in the future. Um, but you're, you're always going to make mistakes. And the fact that you make a mistake in a session is not going to be the thing that turns you from a winning player into a losing player. And the absolute worst thing that can happen for your EV if you're a winning player is that you get knocked out of the game completely because of these mindset leaks. Like you burn out and you just stop playing. Well, now your EV just went from eight big blinds to zero. And that's actually the worst thing that can happen. The odds that you're going to be losing in games unless you have really poor game selection are very, very low. Um, maybe you'll go from eight to five or six if you're playing on a bad day or an, at a time where you don't really feel like you should you can be playing your a game um but yeah longevity is just is super important and the ability to just put in that volume because the fact is there are recreationals playing and there's a lot of free money floating around and you a major part of your job as a poker player is to just be there to to get that money that free money when it's there just show um, up and to to not go crazy in the process. Yeah, and especially what what you said and empathy again is very important here, right? Align, aligning expectations, not so that you sit, you lose three buy-ins, you're like, what the fuck is going on? No, this is this is something that I consciously do before I start playing. I align expectations. What can happen? I can sit down and lose three buy-ins. This can happen, right? Whereas if you don't expect it, because you are not conscious about it and you just expect to be a winner, you might get thrown off by like, what the fuck? Three binds? What's happening? You know, you start my, but if you just align expectations and have empathy towards yourself, especially when certain things are mistakes, like, ah, not great, but can happen. I'll look at it afterwards. That's, I think, another very important one. If you use a tracker, you can mark hands. I, use, I usually call it, I read in my very first year in CFP, I wrote, I made like a little book, an actual book that I gave to my students. And it was pre-session, post-session. And basically, there were just some basic questions of like, well, what are my focus points? How did you do my focus point? Uh, like a, a little performance book was first, like 2019, I think this was. And within, after every five sessions or so, so every every session was one page, I put it like a little uh, a motivational quote or put it like some advice. And one of them was mental, mental flushing, I think I called it. That when you play a hand, the act of actually marking it to associate that with like, listen, it's marked and now it's gone. Because so you don't ruminate over hands anymore. I know this for myself, this is very useful. As soon as I know that I mark it and after my session, I'm going to look at it, I can let it go. Because it's very, uh, very bad or not optimal that if you're playing a poker hand, let's say you have 100% brain capacity for a poker hand, if 50% is still thinking about the last hand that you played, that's a problem, right? Because then you only have 50% left for the current hand. So... I think that's uh, that's definitely something that uh, players can use for. Another, I remember that, I don't know if you listened to the podcast that we did with, I think it was Sonny. He said, if I go into a session and I straight away lose three buy-ins, there's a certain element of accept, accepting here. He said, it's very unlikely that I will win this session. Let's say I start the session down 20K. If I can end this session down minus 5K, that's a huge win. That I thought it was a very interesting mindset shift as well. Like he already accepted, like, listen, winning this session, I mean, would be great, but it's unlikely to happen. But if I can only lose 10 today, that's, a, that's, that's amazing. It's amazing. This is a completely different, different mindset. Uh, definitely for people, I, I thought 
the Sunny Podcast uh, very good if you want to hear someone who who figured it out mindset wise. Yeah, it makes me think of something that I used to do, which was maybe probably more extreme than that even, which was that I, I learned this from Andrew Graham. Oh, hey, Cindy on Poker Stars. People might remember that name. I remember. We lived very together cute. in, yeah, in uh, 2020. I had the pleasure of living with him and we were both grinding uh, Bavada side by side and kind of dealing with the swings together. And we made up this game and this game works especially well in anonymous games because you can really turn up the aggression and people won't be able to exploit you. But if we would get stuck early in a session, we would play the game. Let's see how much I can lose <laughs> in the session. <laughs> so we would start like, I would start taking every single spot. I would just, you know, if, if I was going to bluff maybe 70% pot, I would go for a two X over bet, you know, as long as it made sense, uh, you, you know, you have some flexibility in, in poker to, to take a more aggressive spot or to take a less aggressive spot. A lot of times it doesn't really matter, you know, in, in EV. So, you know, maybe I can barrel the turn with this hand half the time and check half the time I'm going a hundred percent and just choosing the biggest sizes and making the biggest pots and kind of a degenerate, uh, strategy <laughs> for sure. I, I get it. But, right. It's like, listen, we're going to lose anyway. Who cares? We're either going to lose big or we're going to make it back. That's kind of the mentality. Yeah. It was just, yeah, I think it was just sort of a way of just laughing in the face of variance instead of being really scared of it. Like there's another attitude you could take, which is like, oh God, I'm down five buy-ins. You know, how am I going to recover from this? Well, this game was more, it's just like saying, well, well, fuck this. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit about the five buy-ins. I'll lose 15 buy-ins, you know, I don't, I don't give a shit. And, um, and, and, you know, like usually we don't play aggressively enough to begin with. So if anything, I was just kind of helping our game and not hurting it. I would say for me, it's probably, that's probably a good game to play because if I go on a downswing, I probably revert more to passive play. So I would have to consciously up the aggression way more. Like I said, I will find excuses why I should give up this hand or that that's, that's my classic tilt, uh, passive tilt. That That's my classic league. So for me, actually, this game would be, would be very good i would say just don't come back to me uh yeah okay no work out no, for no 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 <laughs> no it didn't work money back guaranteed with patrick, patrick howard here right all right all right noted uh I, I was i was curious to move on move on uh in the conversation you play you spent i think like 80 percent of your time coaching what made you decide to Focus full time on coaching instead of also playing. It was just a natural thing for me. Uh, like I said, right from the beginning, when I got back into poker, I started working on coaching uh, for my brother. And so I think it's just, that's the way that I learn. And then also, like I said before, it gives me a lot more satisfaction to feel like I'm building something and researching and discovering new things. Uh, because when I play, I just sort of play a strict strategy and I don't really feel like I learn very much through playing. Sometimes I'll make a connection and I'll get an idea like, oh, I want to go study this more. Uh, and I, I do sometimes play creatively, but it's, it's not 
it's not usually the kind of thing that I feel like can translate into um, a strategy uh, that I can reproduce and use in the future. For that, I really need to just step away from the tables and and do real work in the solver or, or enhance a note. So yeah, I just get a lot more satisfaction out of that. And I think coaching is better for me for that reason. There was a time when I was sort of self-conscious about this. I would get really self-conscious that I didn't want to play poker because when you're a poker coach, um, you know, a lot of people just hate poker coaches on the internet. There's a lot of trolls. <laughs> bang, bang to the poker um, coaches. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty natural that you've got this cohort of people in the community that are making the games a lot tougher. And, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why some people just hate the poker coaches, uh, because they're just making the games tougher. Um, it also, you know, people who don't want to invest in themselves and get better at poker will probably naturally dislike poker coaches. And so one of the things you get a lot as a poker coach is, oh, you don't play poker. You know, you probably can't even make money playing poker. Um, even though I, I, I personally proved that I can definitely make money playing poker, even at high stakes, you know, you still get that. And if you're not playing very much, you're not going to be as sharp. Like I will be the first to admit, I'm not as sharp as some of my students or probably most of my students um, who are playing full-time. There's a difference between being a talented poker player and being sharp, um, you know, and you can go through phases where you're sharp at some times and you're not sharp at other times when you're focusing more on the coaching. Um, I forgot what your initial question was, but, but yeah, the, it's just like, you only have a certain amount of hours in the day, right? So it's not feasible to expect yourself to have a, a coaching business that you might work on six or eight hours in a day, and then to go play a four hour poker session after that, you just, there has to be a trade-off. Um, At a high level. Yeah, I, I, I like coaching definitely. Um, more than playing and then the discovery part of coaching the actual strategy building is the thing that i like the most especially at the the start of your career you were very big on studying population tendencies through mda in your opinion what are the main benefits for people to study their population tendencies the main benefits are well, it's a direct way of learning exploits. And I say that because now I focus almost all my time on theory. Um, most of my time is spent developing simplified GTO strategies. And I feel like I, I probably, the reason that I started with the population stuff is just because that's what the community that I was in was doing when I started playing poker, I, I joined poker detox and my brother, Nick was like really all in on the population exploits at that time. And it was really effective, especially in anonymous games. Um, but I think you can get to the same place by studying theory. It's, you know, the exploits and the theory are just two sides of the same coin. Uh, 
but it, it is a very direct way of getting to the correct exploit to study the population tendencies. And ultimately the exploits are really what matters because, you know, as, as we all know, like the GTO strategy is very fragile. And so if one person deviates even slightly from a game theory optimal strategy and you node lock that into a solver, a solver is going to completely change uh, the way it plays. And so I think especially when you're first starting out playing against weaker players, the, the exploits are really what you should be focusing on to make the most money. What were, when you, when you started taking, working with MDA or maybe also your experience, what you heard from Nick, what were some of the mistakes that you made early on? And what do you think are some mistakes players make when going down the MDA street? What are some of the mistakes that I made because of the MDA strategy? No, so mainly in your learning process, I imagine that, for example, if I speak from my own experience, the way I used data five years ago is definitely different than how I use data now. I, I've, I've made plenty of mistakes in hindsight. Like, oh, it didn't really work like that. Or you understand what I mean? Yeah. Um. I can't really say there hasn't been something where I, like when I was coaching for the stable, it's a pretty high stakes situation to be in because I think at the highest, at the peak, we had, we had like a hundred people playing for poker detox. And so my coaching was it was very much like if this happens then you do this so we weren't obviously you know poker is just such a complex game there will always be variation in how people play there's always going to be decisions that people can make for themselves i can't tell people to do just i can't tell people what to do in every single scenario but i was telling people you know specific things like okay, uh, I did some research and I want you guys to call more in this spot or I want you to bluff more in this spot. And so if you tell 100 people to do that and they all download that information into their strategy and you're like very wrong about it, uh, you can spew money pretty quickly that way. So the stakes are very high. I was pretty fortunate that that didn't really happen that I can think of. I, I I think it's more just like I missed certain things early on and we kept building on the strategy. Like early on, I, I had a simple strategy for exploiting recreational players, but then like after a year at Poker Detox, some of the students actually came to me and they showed me a bunch of stuff that I had missed, like that I didn't even think was mathematically possible. Like, oh, we can bluff recreational players in this line and it's printing money. And then when I saw that, I realized, um, okay, we need to focus entirely on this for the next few months. And we just overhauled our strategy. So uh, the MDA stuff, I, I think the main weakness of it is kind of what people tend to say, which is that if you are in tougher pools or you face somebody who does not play like the the population tends to play, if you don't have any backup, any sort of balanced strategy to fall back on, that 
can be a big problem. So you, you do need to have that at some point as you get higher and higher uh, in the stakes in poker. Yeah, you need to kind of understand. And I think this is what you were also referring to in the beginning. And I completely agree with that. The more you study theory, the more you actually become better at exploitation because you can kind of understand like, hmm, it's unlikely that this will happen. And then you can play around with it and you can use that data to sort of confirm your intuition or like the data, if you look at the solver output and then if you look at the data, it's usually not a surprise if you put the next, or if you put the two next to each other, like, oh, this spot arrange is stronger. This spot arrange is weaker. And then if you look at the solver, it's like, yeah, I can see why people have trouble having too strong of a range here or too weak of a range here. It's usually very, uh, what's the what's the correct words? Inter intertwined? Is that the word? Yeah. Yeah, that's why my my logo of my company is the Mobius strip. Uh -huh. Mobius poker. The the Mobius strip is like an imaginary mathematical shape, and it's a uh, it's it's kind of like a continuum. It looks a little bit like an infinity symbol, but the Mobius strip looks like a two sided object, but it's actually a one sided object. You can just Google it if you're listening to this. It might be better to just see it, but um, just imagine like a a loop which is looks like it's two sided, but it's actually twisted in the middle. So it's it's only one side looping around on itself continuously. And that's kind of the metaphor for me for poker, because it's exploits and theory. They look like two separate things, but they're actually just two sides of the same coin. I can't even define or tell you what an exploit is without telling you about some theory. I can't tell you somebody's overfolding here your next question to me should be well, what does overfolding mean you know relative to what and then i have to explain to you what minimum defense frequency is and um you know and, and pot odds and and things like that expected value those types of concepts so why did you then move away from NDA and take a more gto oriented approach nowadays um didn't uh, because... when, when, when you told this to nick he said don't do it don't go down the rabbit hole i've been there <laughs> I remember that was yeah. his, his backstory, right? He was full in full in GTO and then Yes. I discovered some ways to work with solvers that I think were more efficient. Um I think that the the weakest point of solvers are the aggregation report tools. And they're getting better, like GTO Wizard is getting better with their reports. But um I think people spend way too much time studying with solvers in individual cases, looking at one board instead of looking at solver data in the aggregate. And so when I first opened up Pio and I started using it, kind of had this, I, I didn't really even go through that rabbit hole that Nick went down. I think he had told me about that rabbit hole that he went down. And I just saw this and I thought, you know, this is a useful tool, but it it's it's actually not, it's kind of useless unless I have um, additional tools to work with a lot of solver data in the aggregate. So around 2021, I met a really talented developer and I had him build some custom software for me to start working with Pio. Um, and, and so that I could look at a lot of boards at once and see how certain types of hand classes are playing um, over large subsets of boards on average. And through that, I started developing simplified 
strategies where I would kind of basically create like a table of frequencies. This is how you play middle pairs in the spot. This is how you play your nut value, you know, bet this percentage of the time, make a few adjustments for texture, then node lock that exact strategy on a subset of 25 boards and actually test it against PyoSolver and see how exploitable it is um, and, and just try to get that exploitability down. So the sort of the software, the infrastructure was already there for me with hand to note when studying exploits. And so, and that was also just a pretty obvious starting point for a lot of reasons. And I spent a good couple of years on that, but then it became time just naturally, um, the exploits, you know, the, the, the fruit had been sort of picked from that tree. I was playing in tougher games. My students were playing in tougher games. I started the program Mobius Cash, which is a high stakes staking, uh, or not staking program, but uh, a high stakes stable. And so I needed balanced strategies that players could fall back on. Um, so it made more sense to start studying this theory and I just had to build the tools to do it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, especially when it comes down to exploits, you have to really explain why and especially when so that people can identify like, oh, I'm doing this, but this is actually an exploit and I can do this in this type of instances. Whereas if they only know what the exploit is and it's not working due to a specific opponent that they're playing against, then what else are they going to do? So yeah, I think it's very important to really dig down into go yeah, that's why we call it the mechanics of poker to really break down what the mechanics are and then what the consequences are of certain action reaction or certain range constructions, how we then would differentiate from the optimal strategy to really learn it at a deeper level because then you can switch based on the tendencies of your pool, the tendencies of your exact opponent. Um, I was curious then in your experience, what are the, you found a very effective way to use the solver? What are common ineffective ways to use a solver that you see out there like big big traps that people fall for so studying too many individual spots is one of them and then drawing conclusions um about how you should play in all spots based on one specific word i think we've if anybody's worked with solvers has the experience of like you just change one card on the board you know like there are certain times when a queen nine three flop plays one way and then you change the three to a four and then it, it changes like a lot of stuff, but the hands that you're supposed to be bluffing with or whatever. Um, and, and that kind of stuff is, I think what contributes to just, you know, people not being able to study theory effectively, the sort of rabbit holes that my brother went down when solvers first came out. Uh, another thing that I would stress is to focus on the impact factor of any spot that you're studying. Um, if you're watching a poker video and the guy is talking about how to donk bet on monotone flops and he's making a 45-minute video about this, I would be a little bit suspect about that coach. Maybe he just didn't have an idea for a video and he, he had to create a 45 minute video that week. So he just picked something out of a hat. But the reality is, even if there is 
a lot to be learned in that spot. Monotone flops are approximately 5% of flops, I think, and uh, or maybe even a little bit less than that. And then you only donk the flop about 1% of the time overall. And so even if there is a lot to be learned in this specific spot, it's probably not going to matter very much if you have an edge on your opponents in this spot because it's just not going to come up often enough to be relevant to have a significant impact on your win rate. And so I encourage people to really study the fundamentals as much as possible uh, with the solver and, and just look at your database, multiply the amount of hands, you create a simple filter, see how many times you encountered a spot, and then try to get an estimate for how large the pot was when that spot occurred. Multiply those two numbers together and you have um, how much money is actually going into that particular node of the game tree. And then look at every common node in the game tree and actually rank spots that way. That's what I mean when I say the impact factor of a spot. That can help you to really prioritize what's important to study and what's not. Yeah, I think it's very, very good advice. I remember when uh, when we started our CFP, like in 2019, I believe, suddenly a lot of players uh applied and then suddenly we had to start so i was like oh shit i actually didn't really think about it there's of what i'm gonna do and i was like how, how should i approach this and i did exactly what you said i went to my holder manager said okay 100k hands which board textures are most common which spots are most common uh what is uh actually the, the average pot size is only something that came later and later also i was made mainly also comparing like where we're underperforming where we're overperforming as a group so i could uh like focus on very specific spots that we were just simply underperforming. Um, but yeah, I think it's a very effective way. I remember actually <laughs> before that I was, I had two main study buddies and we all took one flop and one, one friend of mine took a ace high monotone flop. And then he shared his, uh, his findings. And then we, we basically, we didn't notice at the time, but basically, oh, nice. Every time when a monotone flop occurs, we can ask you. And that's sort of when a monotone flop occurs, it's like, <laughs> what, what do I have to do? It's a monotone flop. And actually someone pointed me out, I think it was last week, like, oh, I went to the master class of, uh, of the Weko, but actually it didn't say anything about monoflops. And it's true. I, if a monoflop comes, I'm like, hmm, monoflop, monoflop, monoflop. Usually my default is just like, take it easy. That, that's my default. Take it easy. Don't bet too big. Don't go too crazy. That's my default. And that's all the studying I've ever done on monotone flops. Take it easy. That's it. I see monoflop, I think take it easy. And other than that, I don't bother. Honestly. Um, yeah, I, I do the same exact thing with my tone flops. It's just like, <laughs> don't overplay your hand. <laughs> or like when, when, when the board comes like trip, triple parrot, like, hmm, triple parrot, triple parrot. Triple parrot actually is the opposite. I'm like, oh, it's not take it easy. It's like, oh, depending, depending obviously who the razor is. But if you're the razor, triple parrot's not so bad. Um, or uh, cor correct me if I'm wrong. I guess I've not done any study on triple parrot. So it is no, like four, four, it's... four on the board. Yeah. <laughs> if you're the Razor, 4 for 4 is quite good, right? Who cares? I don't know. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, so some, some general advice for the people. Hi, guys. Renee, a.k.a. The Weko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program, you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now, one of these, of course, is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. 
we'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. What are some things that happen in, let's call it Solverland, that nobody can ignore? And what are things we should not be looking to do in most cases that happen in Solverland? Um, what are some things that we can't ignore? Well, I I always start with like, the overall frequencies. Uh, I'm not sure if this is kind of what you're, yeah, what yeah, you're getting sure. at with your question, but like most of what I look at in solvers is the aggregation reports. So defense frequencies in certain spots. Um, an example of this, like a, a super important spot that seems like nobody is aware of currently is how much you have to defend, uh, for example, when you're in position facing a large C-bet on the flop, whether in single raise pots or in three-bet pots, people still overfold in these spots so much. And it's literally like I, I would give the advice that if somebody bets two-thirds pot in this spot, you should try to defend as if they bet half pot. And if they bet half pot, you should try to defend as if they bet one third. Like that's how far people are off still currently. Um, so yeah, I always focus on like the overall uh, solver frequencies first. Um, another thing that I would suggest is to actually node lock your strategies and see how well they're performing. I first saw Sauce do this on a, a run at once video. I haven't like I said before, I haven't watched too much uh, poker content, but I did watch several of his run at once videos. And he was the first person I saw who would actually node lock his strategy in, into Pio and see how much EV he lost versus Pio Solver. And I think that's just such a valuable exercise. Uh, and it's tedious unless you have software that can help you do it automatically. 
uh, but it's very worth it and it's a very humbling exercise. I think I heard, I think it was Kudinov who also talked about this this process in one of the podcasts where he would come up with an exploitive strategy and then he would put his exploitive strategy against Pyot to see how exploitive his exploitive strategy was. Quite, quite, quite good stuff. Yeah, what well, was, for example, you, so basically it's like, we cannot ignore, for example, MDF. That's something that solver, it's important in solverland, it's also important in practice. But let's say, for example, the fact that you have to, let's say, for example, a prefer branch. I think, I think I've seen some of your stuff that you don't mind this either. You could, for example, big blind for a small bet, you could three bet 50% of king six off, 50% of king seven off, or you could only pick king seven off. That's something that, for example, needing to have all certain hands at a certain frequency, would you say that's something that's only important in a solver or would that also be important in the real, real world? Yeah, I think preflop, uh, you can definitely make big simplifications like that because your opponents will never really be able to pick up on whether you're three betting king seven off or king six off. And even if they could, it it might be pretty difficult most of the time for them to even construct an exploit based on that information. Uh, but that doesn't even matter because they're not going to know anyway. So preflop is um, a spot where I simplify a lot. Lower stakes students, I'll just have them play pure strategies preflop. So, you know, just picking one solid bluff combo instead of five different combos at a 20% frequency, I think works really well. And then you yeah, can, saw, if you, as you go those... further, you can go to like 50-50 mixed frequencies if that feels better to you. But I wouldn't like go much further than that, honestly. The benefit, I think, becomes more when you know a hand is a mix that you shouldn't stay with that, but that you know it's a mix so that you could, for example, look at your population tendencies or look at your specific opponent like, hey, this hand can go either way. Do I have a certain incentive based on how my opponent plays to either go to the left or the right? I think that's what a mixed hand would indicate. And obviously, like in a solver, it's very important because the other guys know your strategy exactly, right? So you cannot never have one hand and always have another hand, both preflop and postflop, because that will have serious consequences. Where obviously in practice, like you said, well, nobody knows if you, if you did instead of on the flop had a specific gutter and you better did a hundred percent or zero percent. Obviously, if you do it, there are spots where if you do it with all your draws, it's a problem. Uh, but with specific hand, like it doesn't really matter because no one knows your exact strategy. Uh, I was curious, like, how do... So, if you look at the, the poker toolkit, the poker player toolbox, so to speak, we have the hand-to-notes, we have the solvers. How do these come together? I mean, you're very big on, like, the process of strategy creation. How do these come together in the process of strategy creation? And should we add maybe another tool to the toolbox? Um, I think that's... You know, like I said before, you have to have an understanding of the theory to get to the, the correct exploit. So hand to note is going to be telling you what people are actually doing in practice, whereas PyoSolver or just toy game models, uh, simpler theory is going to tell you what they should be doing. And so if you want to exploit that gap between what people should be doing and what they are doing, I think you need both tools. Um, I think the newer tools that are coming 
out now are also really interesting. Um, so GTO Wizard obviously is a huge development. The trainers are a big development. Like I, I think initially people were a little bit skeptical about them. Like how much is this actually improving? It's like this thing's giving me six bet sizes and it's trying to t like teach me on all this irrelevant stuff. But it, that's it was just the initial phase of trainers, I think. Trainers are just going to get more and more practical as they improve the software and, and improve the user experience. Yeah, that's now, a big especially one. Especially with then, AI, right? You already see that. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I guess, you know, I, I spend a lot of time and resources getting custom uh, software built for me. Um, so if you are able to do that, that's huge as well. I mean, like there's not, not really like a bigger edge that you can have, I think, than to have some sort of software or tool that other people in your games are just not using. I mean, before solvers came out on the public market, before Pio was released in 2015, I think a, a lot of the best players had their own private solver that they were working with. So that that's just a huge advantage. I mean, next to this point, what is an often overlooked or underestimated way to increase your EV as a poker player in your opinion? So we already have developing software that gives you an asset that other people don't have. Is there another one? Maximizing your win rate against recreational players, I think is the biggest one that still gets overlooked. It's It's a little bit more common now to hear that, but even now, if you just go on a poker training site and you click on a random video, I think the probability that they're even going to mention strategy against recreational players is pretty low. I don't know what percentage of videos cover this, but it's not nearly enough. And it's kind of absurd when you think, well, probably like 80 plus percent of your income comes from the recreational player. Now, maybe it's only 10 or 20% of the hands that you play is against recreational players, but those hands are worth all the money. And if you're a weaker reg, it might be more than 100% of your income comes from recreational players because you might be winning from the recs and then paying rake, obviously, and then maybe losing a little bit back to the stronger regs, but you're still profiting. So, I mean, there's, there's just so much that changes. Like if you're just studying GTO, um, even just preflop, like your preflop ranges are based on a simulation, which was assuming that you had a bunch of other players at your table who were also playing a perfectly balanced strategy and that you could not have an edge on them post-flop. So even something like your opening range is going to change drastically just by putting one recreational player to your left who's playing maybe 20% too many hands. And then factor in the fact that their their win rate is negative 30 big blinds per hundred. And so obviously that is going to incentivize you to play a lot more hands and get involved in a lot more pots against them. I would just encourage people um, to just try to exercise logic to think more about how how you could possibly exploit the recreational players at your table because although like any fundamentally sound strategy will work 
that doesn't mean that you're getting the maximum out of recreational players. And because they are such a large portion of your income, like any improvements you can make on them are just worth so much. I think also all the time that you spend in recreational players are like endlessly valuable because it doesn't matter if, if you move up the stakes, it doesn't matter. Recreational is recreational. So all the work you put in and it's also unlikely for them to change. So all the strategies that you develop versus recreational, it will probably be valid for the next 10 years, at least. Assuming that, you know, recreationals, they don't suddenly all decide to come together and be like, us as recreational players are going to come up with a better strategy. It's unlikely to happen. So it's very yeah. like your return of investment in the time that you put in compared to, let's say, for example, I put my time in coming up with a strategy against Patrick Howard. And then suddenly Patrick Howard, a half, a half year later, has also changed his strategy or has improved. Then I put it all the time in. And then six months later, it's worth less. Whereas for recreational players, it will remain very valuable. I think it's also like a flaw, right? We we try to improve, so we win. And then against the recreation players, like, oh, we're already winning anyway. So there's less of a motivation to to start. While it's actually, indeed, well, if you could double your win rate there against them, that's going to have the most significant impact on your win rate. There's nothing else you can do that boosts your win rate at a higher level than getting better versus recreationals. Um, Adam, recreational players in the heads up sitting go world it was warring with racks and then you get to basically you go through hell and then you get into harvana and you only you only play fish correct yeah kind of like that so you'll basically be established at a level and then you'll just bump hunt and play recreationals all day long and then they'll have other regs who are shooting that level so you have to defend your lobbies against kind of promising regs that are upcoming and then if you move up stakes to another level, you've got a reg battle and war against the regs at those levels to almost get initiated into the new level. So you have these phases where there's many months of just reg battling and then many months of just playing recreations. But yeah, as Patrick said, like looking back at my career, I wasted way too much time on reg dynamics and playing as regs. Like some of my friends who just were fish crushers made so much more money than me because they just obsessed over how to squeeze every bit of edge out of every recreational player. And I think in almost all public dynamics, that's going to be the way to make the most profit. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because as, as Patrick mentions, the kind of skew towards GTO strategies and optimal players in terms of content that's produced, courses produced, is probably way too high relative to uh, where money's made in poker. So uh, yeah, focusing on recreational strategies, I think you can't really go wrong in terms of the knowledge you'll learn there. So yeah, definitely worth spending time. All right, I want to do a little bit of reflecting for you, Patrick. So first of all, reflect a bit on your poker career itself, and then reflect on your experiences around being around players and what you've learned being in the poker landscape. So first of all, uh, what would you say is the most important lesson poker has given you? Maybe being a poker player in particular, what are some of the most important things it's taught you? There's a lot of lessons. I think the first one that comes to mind is that you're senses and your intuition are a lot more fallible than you think so just going back to the cognitive biases uh we're not rational creatures we're like fundamentally irrational another one is that you cannot expect immediate results uh based on a change that you make in your game like the universe doesn't really care if you made a huge improvement to your game this week you know, let's say even by some miracle, you managed to double your win rate from two and a half big blinds per hundred to five overnight. 
you may not see that play out for another six months or more. You can go on a huge break-even stretch or downswing. So the universe doesn't really care about uh, what you're putting into it. I, I think uh, there's a, a phrase that I like, you're entitled to the fruits uh, you're entitled to the action, never to its fruits. Um, I like that a lot. I think about poker in that way. Um, the last thing that I, I'll mention is that I, I think poker has shown me that you generally can't avoid variance without reducing your expected value. So you can't really play it safe. Um, without costing yourself money in general. And the variance and the uncertainty is just like something that you have to embrace. You can't run away from it. They were great. Yeah. It's the whole uh, risk reward ratio as well. If you want more rewards, you have to take more risks to kind of get in touch with that. You actually mentioned something which I want to touch on now, which is perfect timing. You mentioned something called statistical uncertainty. And you said most players don't know how to calculate this and they actually completely miss it. So could you explain what statistical uncertainty is and what are players generally missing when it comes to this? Statistical uncertainty is just, um, you know, how much statistical error there is in a certain stat that you might be looking at. So for example, if you're looking at somebody's three bet frequency, you have a certain number of trials that they had an opportunity to three bet, and then you've got their actual frequency that they three bet. Most stats in poker are a binomial probability distribution. That just means that there's two states, like a coin flip it could be either heads or tails, either they were bluffing or value betting, or either they three bet or they didn't three bet. And so that's a fairly easy thing to model in statistics. Um, you can, I don't remember the the numbers off the top of my head usually, but it's like if you have 400 trials on a sample and um, you want to be using like a, let's say a 90% confidence interval, um, the statistical uncertainty in that step might be like 4%. And so if somebody's three bet over 400 trials is 15, then what it actually means is that their three bet is not 15. It might be um, 15 plus or minus 4% at a 90% confidence interval. So you can be 90% confident that the three bet is within that range, but that's all you can really say. Um, that, that's just the observed value. It's not the true value. Mm. So this is really important when you're trying to exploit players and also when you're trying to do database analysis is to actually know when you are looking at signal and when you are just looking at pure noise uh, because if you're you know just developing strategies without thinking about uncertainty at all you're a lot of the time you're just going to be developing strategies based on noise and and nonsense and it's going to be less accurate and just make your strategy way more complicated than if you just focus on the signal that you actually have sample size for. So in my training in physics, I had a few professors that were just absolute, um, they were just so strict about drilling this and making sure that every single lab that we did, we quantified 
the uncertainty in our measurements. And so I just took that from physics and applied it to poker. But I think it's a big thing that people miss. Mm, yeah, very interesting. So where do players misapply this? Where do you feel like people, players' lack of understanding cost them a lot here? Is it basically overreacting to short sample sizes? Is it making adjustments to data points that don't necessarily reflect what the number is saying? How, how do you think players are potentially missing out here without understanding this? Yeah, like for example, I'll tell a player that you should bluff in a certain line because people overfold. And they'll try it three times and they'll be like, well, I got called three times. This, this doesn't work. I don't, and they'll, they'll literally stop doing it. And you have to kind of sit them down and explain to them that like the, the sample size that they're looking at is not significant. And they might actually never get a significant sample size in their career, or maybe it'll take years for it to converge. Um, and so that's a big thing is just people are kind of letting short-term results dictate their strategy uh, when they really shouldn't be. Yeah, this is a tough one for players. So what would you recommend for, let's say there's some data points, let's say it's in a river spot where the sample size is always gonna be relatively low. So there's a lot of statistical uncertainty. There's a lot of kind of variance in that sample. How do you uh, instill in your players who you work with or who you speak with, how do you override the kind of the mind wanting to anchor to that number? Let's say you say someone folds four times in a row. So the stats 100% folds and they overreact to that. So how do you get to that kind of more balance? Is, is it just the understanding by just going over the numbers, getting someone to understand exactly what sample size would be relevant here? How do you kind of bridge that gap between what they're experiencing and the numbers themselves? I think doing population research is the most important thing. And that'll give you a larger sample size. And Everybody has a database large enough. If you're a professional poker player, uh, as long as you play on track sites, you can do population research. Having an understanding of the variance and the statistical uncertainty is also very important. Um, it's something that I've always stressed in my coaching is to not just tell people what to do, but to actually show all of the empirical evidence and, and like the proofs of how I got there. So I found that like, if you're telling people to do something, that'll go a certain way. But if you actually show them proof of, you know, this is why this works, this is the math behind how this works, it gives people a lot more confidence to actually use those strategies, even if they're not just, you know, they're not working in the short term. Yeah, it's almost like providing enough evidence to counter their current stance. And if you show them your, the methods you went through, how you've worked it out, you've got data to back it up, uh, yeah, I think a lot of players would be able to uh, change their strategy in that context. Uh, so what would you say has been some of the greatest contributors to your success? You've had a background in physics, you've got like a scientific approach to learning and, and quantifying stuff. What do you think has allowed you to be both a successful poker player and then be able to uh, then transition into teaching concepts at a high level to high stakes poker players? Uh, I think that I've, I've taken a contrarian approach to the game in a few key areas. And I, I think if you want to have outsized results in poker, you have to have some contrarian ideas and do things differently than the average poker player is doing. Because if you just do what the average player is doing, you're going to get average results usually. So 
one example of a contrarian idea would be kind of what I've already talked about with maximizing your adverse recreationals first and then focusing on the regular second. Um, I'm also really, really big on simplicity in my game and being humble enough to accept that I can't remember all of the things that I'm studying when I'm away from the tables. And there's actually a very limited um, amount of things that I can study and execute in game. So basically what's happening in my brain when I'm studying away from the tables is very different from the reality of playing six or eight tables at a time online and you've got real money on the line and maybe you're on a 20 buy-in downswing. Your strategy has to be way simpler than you think you need it to be uh, in order for it to be actually, you know, ready to go into battle with. And I've also touched on this already, but I think I take a lot more accountability over my play than maybe the average poker player does. Um, so things like developing this stat checker that I've developed, automatically checking my stats against the solver frequencies in every single spot, um, or at least every common spot in the game tree, and really not allowing any leaks to persist, just having complete vision over my own game and sort of obsessing over plugging leaks. And when you do that, you also, you're not just obsessed with plugging your own leaks, but it becomes pretty easy to like take that mindset and then turn it against your opponents and find their leaks uh, that they're not willing or able to fix. You seem like someone who's very precise and details oriented. Are these traits that you think are common amongst other high stakes professional players? Or do you think they need it as traits to succeed in the, the modern poker world? I think so. I, when I think of like the two most successful poker players in my network, um, one of them would be Matt Marinelli, who was just on the podcast, and there would be Yuri Martins, uh, another absolute crusher. And I, I hope you guys can have him on the podcast at some point. I would be really interested to watch that. Um, the common thread that I see between both of these guys is that they just don't really have any weaknesses and, um, you know, that might seem obvious or like a, a tautology, but it's, it's like, they are just obsessed with plugging their leaks. And so if you tell them, you know, you're overfolding in this spot, that leak maybe has a week or two before it's just gone and it's just eradicated. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think uh, in general, the the more successful poker players will be a lot more precise in that way. You mentioned earlier that players who are more kind than themselves will generally do better in poker. How does the detailed orientated, very precise, wants to solve everything quite precisely, personality gel well with trying to be kind to himself? How do you kind of find that sweet spot between always trying to do better, always trying to learn, whilst also not beating yourself up in that process? Is there anything that comes to mind for that? Yeah, it's hard. And it does kind of sound like a contradiction, right? But there's all of these kind of paradoxes in poker where you, you have um, technical skills and then you have soft skills and you have to kind of find a sweet spot in between. And um, 
I would just say, you know, like the strongest poker players that I know, it's there's no sort of uh, shortcut. Like they're just strong in all of these areas. So it's like, yes, and like, yes, they're extremely technically uh, proficient and detail oriented. And also they have the ability to forgive themselves, be a little bit easier on themselves when that's important. They work on their mindset a lot too. And so I think they just approach, like they, they attack the game from all angles. Like that's kind of what you have to do. If you, if you want to be one of the best in the world at something, you kind of have to be a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 in almost every area. Yeah. You almost can't have any weak links or if you have weak links, you need to be directly attacking those at some point. So what do you think are some of the common maybe beliefs or misconceptions that low to stake, low to mid stakes players have that maybe prevent them from getting to the higher levels? Anything that you feel like maybe mental blocks that, yeah, in particular, the mid to low stakes guys hold onto that prevents them from reaching the higher heights. Just that the, the, those high stakes games are like a thousand times more difficult to beat than the lower stakes games. They're really not, um, you, you know, like I, I, when I talk to students who are playing these games and I, I especially talk to Matt a lot about this and he's obviously wildly talented, so he's going to have this perspective, but he's consistently said to me that like every new level that he gets to, he's like expecting it to be this huge jump in difficulty. And it's just really not, um, if anything, when you get to a really high level, the games get easier, uh, from a technical standpoint, I think from a mental game standpoint, the games get exponentially more difficult as you go up in stakes because the mindset difficulty just scales with the stakes and the stakes go up exponentially. So the challenge at a certain point when you get to nosebleeds is actually like the, the games are maybe technically easier because they often just run around a recreational player. Or if you get to the Holy grail, I would say, you know, private games where you've got just like tons of recreational players and playing for super high stakes, then it becomes more of a mindset challenge like that that's you know just just not losing your mind is is the big challenge there mm -hmm. um but yeah i think low stakes players just they overestimate the difficulty and, and the skill level of players at stakes above them it's interesting you said that the mindset difficulties scale with the stakes they play and from one angle i'm seeing the uh, the money that's on the line and the swings that you're going to take relative to maybe your bankroll how do you think players should be uh, thinking about risk and how much risk they take at different phases of their poker career. I know this is a challenging question to ask, but I, I feel like players struggle to know what is the kind of line to be, th uh, to be looking for in terms of how much risk to reward I should be taking a certain part of my career and how do I start to make good choices to uh, take on enough risk? Because as we've mentioned throughout this conversation, we're generally risk averse people. We generally will do things that don't lead to too much risk, but we have other personality types who are just way too reckless. They'll just take way too much risks in terms of their bankroll. So uh, any advice for players on how to think about risk at various stages of their careers? I would love to publish some optimal bankroll strategies at some point in my career. Um... I've got a developer who I've collaborated with on other articles on variance. He's a super smart guy. Um, and, and he's able to do the math and the simulations behind this. And I, I would love to co-author something with him because it's, 
kind of insane to me that it's 2023 and we've got thousands of people playing poker professionally and there is still really not like a, a clear guide for this is how many buy-ins you should have if you are playing at this limit and like this is when you should take a shot um i think that if you were to ask a computer what the optimal bankroll strategy is how much risk you should be taking the computer would tell you something that is insanely aggressive like way more aggressive than what most people are comfortable with i think you could you could probably get away with like 10 or 20 buy-ins if you're just taking small shots and i think a computer would tell you that that's like the mathematically most efficient way to move up in stakes um i tend to advocate us what i call a small jabs approach to moving up in stakes and so you're keeping a smaller bankroll and let's say it's 20 buy-ins or 30 buy-ins when you get over that amount you take a two or a four buy-in shot at the next stake and you assume that that shot is probably going to fail 80 percent of the time um but you know it's faster than waiting until you have a really big bankroll to play at the next stake. Uh, another thing I would suggest is if you do stick the landing at a limit, let's say you move up to 200 NL and you make 20 buy-ins and now you're rolled for 200 NL. Imagine, you know, if your previous biggest downswing in your career was $2,000, um, now you could withstand a, a $4,000 downswing and still be playing 200 and now you're still where you at where you were at when you first took the shot i don't think it's healthy to go on a downswing which is like more than 2x or around 3x your previous biggest downswing i think it's just too detrimental for most players mindsets so what i suggest is like even if you stick the landing at your next limit um and you make a bunch of buy-ins and you're rolled for that keep an eye on like when you go on a downswing how big that downswing is in proportion to your previous downswings and really check in with yourself. How am I dealing with this emotionally? Is this affecting my play? It, it takes a really honest look, um, but you can do it if you're honest with yourself and preemptively move down and just make some of that money back before you continue playing at this new stake. I think that can do a lot uh, to avoid burnout because you know it's kind of a, a double whammy when you go on your biggest downswing ever and then you have to move down to make it back and it feels like it's going to take forever to make that back i don't think you really want to put yourself in that position it's way better to just move down preemptively other things you have to think about are like what is your life situation so are you a single guy with absolutely no dependence and low rent if that's the case then you can make you can take a lot bigger risks if you have um, a side income, you can take bigger risks. On, on the flip side, if you have a family and you have people depending on you, you can't take risks like that. You just have to factor that in. I think um, computers going to most of the time be more aggressive than people are willing to go. So the limiting factor is just going to be how strong is your mindset and how much risk can you take on and still play your best and just try to optimize for that. Yeah, as you were speaking there, I was thinking how many complicated scenarios unfold 
just from, say, moving up stakes. So uh, I can see why lots of players get stuck at a certain level. Because like, like I said, like when you play aggressive shot taking, you might fail at that shot take 80% of the time. That's really disencouraging for a lot of players. And even if they mentally knew that going in, to have four to five shot takes failing and you have to move back down and kind of rebuild a little bit is quite a challenging thing to deal with. Then you, let's say you shot take and you get established at a level and then you go on a new downswing, which is double what you'd ever been on before. And now you have to move down stakes to regrind it up. All these kind of things that go on just from you trying to kind of step up the kind of ladder in the poker world. So yeah, it's one of those really um, interesting things where players really need to be mindful of their tolerance for risk and how it's going to play out. And there's almost like a branch of probabilities that can unfold from your shot taking. And as you mentioned, all the things you, you said there were great advice for protecting yourself from the worst case scenario, which worst case scenario is probably either losing a lot in the short term or moving up stakes and then losing a lot and having to move down and regrind. Um, some players are very good at thinking in buy-ins. I remember a conversation with Sonny on the podcast and he almost like eradicated the kind of variance at higher stakes because he just looks at his graph and buy-ins. He doesn't really think about um, how much he's swinging in terms of money. Some players are very good at that. I'd say it, it's quite rare. Most players will get attached to uh, the monetary value at some stage. And like, yeah, as Brennan has mentioned as well, financial pressures in your immediate environments can be a huge factor when you're shot taken and how much risk you're able to take on. So yeah, lots to consider. I think it's one of those factors. And if you could do something in terms of the probabilities and a really statistical um, overview of how to take risk and how to shot take, that'd be amazing because I think that's really missing in the poker landscape. I think almost all players are guessing based on some calculations, but yeah, there's no real guide for most players. And I think almost any player I speak with is moving up stakes or thinking about moving up stakes at some points and they're trying to figure out the, the kind of right strategy. So yeah, I think something created in that space would be super, super useful. Rene, yourself, how do you approach taking risk when you're moving up stakes back in the past? What were some of the things you considered when you were deciding whether a shot take? I actually ag agree with what the Patrick said. The computer will be way more aggressive because the computer will not take in consideration the human factor, right? Like it just takes your win rate and assumes you play exactly the same when you have to move down to the previous stake. There's like so much human factors to take in consideration as well, how comfortable you are at risk. I was always, I would say on the careful side. One thing that I would always do that... I think it may be good advice for people. I would um, make the shot smaller. So let's say you play 100 NL and the next take is 500 NL. That's quite a big jump. What I would just do is if I would be playing 200 NL, I would sell, how much is that? I would sell $200, $500. So that's, uh, who can do the math real quick? 40% or something. Um, I would sell 40% on 500 NL. So I would be playing 200 NL and 300 NL. And then I would sell less, 350 NL, 400 NL. So I would make that jump smaller. And then when I would reach 500 NL, I would almost do the same. I would say like, okay, now I'm at 100 NL, I will sell 40%. So I'll play 500 NL and 600 NL. And then 500 NL, 700 NL, 500 NL, 800 NL. That's how I would slowly move up the stakes. Also, I would try to not have too big of a range in stake. So let's say I would move up to 500 NL. I would also prefer to... I would rather prefer to no longer play 200 NL and just sell 50% of my action for 1K NL. So I would only play 500 NL. So you would also reduce the swings, for example. So these are like some things that I would do to shot take a bit more carefully. But like I said, I was definitely a bit more on the careful side. I'm not, I think we talked about this in other podcasts. Well. I'm not, I'm not make, I'm definitely more of a, less of a risk taker, more of a play it safe type of, uh, type of person. So yeah, that's, yeah, no, uh, no, that's no, my approach, but, but, but I do agree, like 
the compound effect is huge. If you look at uh, a shot, for example, working out. Yeah, it's yeah. it's very hard to to not um, vote for taking shots aggressively. Yeah, and and on on that note, game selection becomes increasingly important uh, when you're shot taking. So ah, yeah, exactly. Like don't don't take your shot because you got to thirty buy-ins or something. And it's a Tuesday night and there's no fish at the <laughs> the 500 now tables that you're taking a shot at. Like wait until the Saturday night when there's tons of fish in the games. That has a huge impact on how likely your shot is to work out. And like you said, a shot working out, I mean, it's like the most important thing that can happen for your income because the only thing that's going to exponentially increase your earnings in poker is moving up in stakes. You can play more volume, but that's going to increase your earnings linearly. You can increase your win rate. That also is going to increase linearly. But if you can increase your stakes, that's how you exponentially increase your earnings because your your earnings double every time you, you double your stakes. Um, so it's really important that those shots work out. Yeah, players, I think, make make the mistake that they suddenly say, well, now I play 500 now. I'm shooting 500 now, and now I'm going to play 500 now. And they just sit down at a 400 game and like, Maybe not the smartest idea, right? So from this moment, you will take shots when the game is good. That's basically that's basically. I remember all the way in the beginning of my poker career, uh, I I I started to I actually started to live together with a guy, and he said, "No, I play two hundred now, but in the weekend I play five hundred now or four hundred now." It was back then two hundred now, four hundred six hundred. He was a weekend grinder on four hundred now, but during the week he would play two hundred now. It made a lot of sense. He, in the weekend the games were better, so he would play higher. And this was like his shot taking routine in weekends. I play higher than during the week. I think that's also actually valuable advice. It was funny listening to you. I wrote down it's a bit of a depressing conclusion. You have to be a 10 to in order to be great at poker, you have to be a 10 out of 10 and everything. And you have to not lose your mind. There was two voices that I wrote down. I was listening like this could be maybe a bit uh, discouraging for uh, for a lot of people. On on the point of I wanted to ask, like on the point of talent, I think you mentioned about matt matt is just extremely talented i quote do you believe that i do believe when we usually ask this question in a questionnaire like do you believe that you can put any achieve anything you put your mind to or do you believe talent is a very big factor and you actually said that you believe you can achieve anything you commit yourself to so can anyone become a high six poker player in your opinion uh i feel like some people don't have it uh, you know, it's just maybe on an infinite timeline, they, they could figure it out. But sometimes I, it's hard for me to be straight with people and, and tell them this. It's probably one of the things I've struggled with the most as a coach. It's like, how do you tell a guy that he just doesn't have what it takes and that he should go do something else? And is it even my place to say that? It's a tough question, but in my experience, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, you, you see a person just make the same mistakes over and over again, where sometimes they'll fix one leak, but then two other leaks will just randomly spring up out of nowhere. And it's like you're playing whack-a-mole with their leaks when you're, when you're trying to coach them. Uh, no, I don't think that anybody can do this. I think it, it might even be irresponsible to to tell people that anybody can beat high stakes. It, it is just, it's an inherently 
challenging thing. There's a huge survivorship bias when you are interviewing people who have really made it in poker. You get a different perspective um, than than you know what the reality is, which is a lot of people don't make it. Most people don't make it. In this when you industry. say they don't have it, what's it? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, it, sometimes I feel like people just lack some sort of fundamental logic around poker. Like I'll see a play get made way too often where a person will fold a hand versus a bet on the river that has value domination on their opponent's betting range. And it's like, they think that they're bluff catching and they're not even bluff catching. They're beating value. Um, or on the flip side, just making huge polarization errors, like turning a hand into a bluff that should just never be a bluff. These things will for sure happen for any player early on in a career, but it's just like, if somebody's studying and practicing poker for years and they're still making these types of fundamental errors that's a red flag that i don't know whatever it is like their their brain just isn't really wired uh to play poker i don't know what it is i think it's a it's a, a variety of uh different things <laughs> yeah I, i i if you would ask me the question i also would not be able to give you a specific a specific answer uh so yeah that's why i usually ask guests so we gather more information on what we all think it is but i do think everyone can make money playing poker so where do you think for the majority is like the ceiling because i do i do think at the real high stakes you need to have <laughs> it <laughs> but like below that i think i think you can turn anyone into a winning Everyone, or at least the majority, I think, can make a living playing poker. Like, obviously, for example, you have to maybe choose your environment really well, depending on what, like, your max capacity is in skill, for example. When you say anyone, do you mean, like, the general population or starting from poker enthusiasts? Start. Let, let's start from people who naturally naturally okay. get into poker. Yeah, because I think if you just took Because they are a bit the pre-selected, of course, yeah. And you started explaining pre-flop rangers to, to them. They would just like, <laughs> just completely space out. Exactly. Um, but yeah, among people who are already playing poker, I think probably somewhere around 100, 200 NL given, well, it's very different. So like I'm a cash game player, so I'm, I'm, I'm giving you cash game uh, stakes, not, not tournaments, but um. Obviously, live poker is completely different from online. Your win rates are way higher in live poker because you can't get as many hands in. And then, you know, right now we've got a very weird situation where certain sites have incredibly soft cash games. And then you have, you know, stars, 100 and L or 200 and L is actually like playing pretty tough. Whereas, you know, if you go in right now, the US is the best place to play cash games or um i've been kind of keeping quiet about this but india is probably the the, the regulated sites on india are, are i think the softest games the softest regulated games in the world right now and it, it almost feels like if you could just 
like anybody with a pulse, you could put someone in those games and teach them a few things. And, you know, half the players at the table are recreationals. They're going to make money. Um, unfortunately, India just passed some pretty horrible regulations, taxing, not even winnings, which were already heavily taxed, but they're taxing deposits now 30%. So you put $100 on the site and you get to play with 70. And that's going into effect, I think, a month or two from now. So it seems like it's kind of going to be GG for those Indian games, which is a really sad thing to see for the future of poker. But um, anyway, getting back to your question, I think 500 now um, in general is where it starts to get pretty real for most people. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And then live, like you said, I think the equivalent 200 NL online is maybe 510 live. Something like that. I have very little life experience, but from what I saw in the limited experience, I think that's that's probably a fair a fair comparison. Um, what are you currently most curious and excited for when it comes down to poker or poker strategy? Let's say, for example, I would message you. I want to do a strategy session with you. What topic do I need to bring up? in order for you to get enthusiastic? Um, so as far as what I'm excited about, I think this is going to sound like an ad because I think you guys are sponsored by them, but GTO Wizard is like a very exciting uh, tool to me because I've met the guys on that team personally. Um, I don't have any stake in the company. I, I have like a an affiliate code that I make like a hundred bucks a month off of. So uh, I'm not uh, too biased on this, but I just really think that they're like an extremely smart, hardworking group of people. And they're just going to keep making that product better and better and better. And it's, it's kind of insane how quickly they are progressing and just dominating the space uh, in trainers. So I'm really excited about that tool and seeing like what they can accomplish with that because I mean, I, I personally just see so many ways that they can improve that product and, and make studying more efficient uh, for people who are willing to put the work in. Um, as far as what excites me uh, study-wise right now, um, I'm interested in simplified uh, GTO strategies. So any sort of like heuristics um, that can simplify range composition down from like the infinite complexity of a solver to something that a human can actually execute. And I'm also pretty interested in uh, cash game bots right now. So I don't mean uh, using bots to play in real games to cheat with. I'm I'm talking about just using bots in a laboratory setting sort of to to study how they play and to create a more accurate um, solver map. I started doing stuff like this a couple of years ago and it was sort of the same thing where like I had an initial idea and I took it to a certain extent and then um, a bunch of other people took that idea and developed it further and then showed me ways that they had expanded on my work. And I, I had another like 
oh shit moment. Like I, I missed a lot of stuff and now I'm going back and expanding on that further. So those are some of the things that I'm interested in right now. How do you see the, the future of poker? Obviously already mentioned I'm generally, GTO wizard, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm generally optimistic about it. Uh, especially tournaments. I, I think that cash games are going to depend a little bit more on U.S. regulations and also regulations in Europe, too. I'm not as familiar with that since I don't live there, but I know that there are a lot of countries with like pretty prohibitive tax rates on gambling that are making things really difficult. In the United States, I think... Um, I'm not an expert on this either. Phil Galfond, I think, has the best content on social media. So I would suggest people go watch his videos about the future of regulation and, and online poker. But um, I think basically the key takeaway is that like a lot of stuff is going to hinge on whether California legalizes online poker because they're like they were like 50% of the market online in the US before Black Friday. Um I think there's seven states in the U.S. now that have legalized it. So it's exciting. I hope that these sites keep opening up and the U.S. states keep opening up. Um, as far as like game integrity, I'm pretty optimistic about that. I don't think that RTA and, and cheating is as big of a problem as people generally make it out to be. And so it's kind of going to just depend on legislation, I think. And um you know, how many people are just playing poker. So a lot of factors that are outside of our control or as a poker community, you think we can contribute to it in a certain way so it falls to the outcome that we want? I really don't know. That's a good question. I personally, I don't think I'd really do anything to influence regulation or legislation. Um, and I'm not sure how one would go about doing that. So I wouldn't want to say that it's impossible though, that you know people could make a difference in the, the politics of it all. Bill Galvin for president. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that helps. Um, what would you like the main takeaway from our conversation today be for our audience? Obviously we touched on various topics, I think uh, the the mental health discussion that we had in the beginning is really important and to just circle back to that and make sure that people don't uh, forget about that and to destigmatize that and, and take it more seriously. I think it's probably the most important thing uh, that we discussed today and, um, you know, everything else, it, it, it is just a job at the end of the day, if you even want to call poker a job. Um, so it's, it's really not that important, um, in the grand scheme of things. Um, and poker, if we're talking about the technical side, it's not just one thing. There's no shortcut. I mean, we just talked about so many different things and, and concepts and ways to approach the game. Hard work is obviously super important but to not look for shortcuts i think is really important just to expect that it's going to be difficult and you're going to have to outwork other people if you want to succeed
All right, wise words. Any final questions from you, Adam? No, all good. Thank you very much for your time, Patrick. Very, very insightful. I'll definitely listen back to this myself and take a lot of notes. So we appreciate you spending the last three hours with us. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot, Mr. Patrick Howard, for dropping your wisdom here on the Mechanics of Poker podcast. Thank you very much. Adam, what are your main takeaways of today's pod? Yeah, it was a great conversation. Patrick went very deep into his mental health, which I thought was very uh, interesting, and it showed a lot of vulnerability, which I think a lot of players could relate to. And yeah, some of the things that came up there were the challenges of being a poker player, the isolation, the long nighttime hours, the financial pressure and the swings you're under. And often as poker players, we can struggle to experience our emotions and what to feel. So we'll suppress stuff, we'll distract ourselves, and we'll find outlets to uh, stop ourselves having to deal with emotions. And as we saw from Patrick's story, and I hear this again with other players as well, it often comes out in other ways. It often you can suppress it for so long, and then there's a breaking point. Then there's a point where you need to address it. So uh, yeah, I think it was really good to bring that conversation forward to uh, give players also some like understanding that you're not alone on this journey. You're also a lot of players struggle with these things. And he had, had some really good tips on, first of all, getting your lifestyle back in, in tandem, sort of sleeping well, exercising well. He mentioned some practical things like uh, taking therapy or he, on medication for him personally when he went deep into his mental health. And then, yeah, just basically trying to reach out to people and have other perspectives on your situation and realizing you're not alone on your journey. Uh, so yeah, I think that was really, really powerful. Other things we went into were cognitive biases. I found that part of the conversation very fascinating myself in terms of the, the things that players think are strategic leaks, but actually come from mental leaks. This can be from emotions causing mental leaks or can be uh, being too passive in nature, which leads you to strategically make a lot of faults in areas you wouldn't. And yeah, often these cognitive biases come from blind spots, blind spots that we're not aware of and the, the brain taking shortcuts. So uh, Patrick mentioned a book called uh, Thinking in Systems, also Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a great book to uh, get a kind of understand of how biases work and build some frameworks. But yeah, really, really good stuff around how the brain works. And yeah, that was a really good conversation about the challenges of being a poker player. We went deep on some areas. And so the, the dark side of being a poker player, which sometimes we don't really talk about. So I think it was good to bring that to the, the forefront. How about yourself, Rene? What were some of the, the main takeaways for you? Yeah, I wrote down at some point, I wrote down few with, with, with like an exclamation point as well, that we should not get lost in distractions and we should be observing why we're from what kind of emotions we're distracting ourselves and how that loop looks. I think I also explained like, oh, I feel in a certain way, therefore I start to do a certain thing. And it's very easy to just distract yourself with alcohol, very common, uh, kind of a bit of a toxic look. You drink too much, therefore you sleep less, therefore you feel more stressed, therefore you need more alcohol, which is kind of a vicious cycle. Uh, what else? Alcohol, for example, for me as well, personally, caffeine, just anything that makes me feel different, smoking, horn, whatever. I, over everything that is like a distraction and that's like stimulates your brain and that takes you away from how you actually feel. If you start to eliminate those and really get in touch with how you feel, I think it's very important. Now, this doesn't mean that oh, I don't feel motivated today, so I'm going to lay on the couch. No, you can feel motivated and still do things. It's not like you're going to be a slave of your emotion, but it is it is important to use your emotions as almost like a compass in a certain way, especially certain emotions. If they keep on coming back, it's probably a good idea to start addressing those. 
uh, I also tried to steer the conversation. I, I was talking about this with Adam. It feels so insignificant when you talk about poker after you've just talked about topics that are very important, like the mental health. But, you know, obviously we are a poker podcast. I know I'm personally interested. And I know a lot of listeners are interested in it as well. We talk a lot about uh, GTO and hand-to-note MDA use and how there's no one side or the other. We talked about how both are very valuable in the process of strategy creation. We talked also a lot on the focus on recreational players. Recreational players, they tend to have huge loss rates compared to regulars. So your ROI, how much you get back for the amount you put in for studying is usually way greater than if you study other regulars, for example. It feels intellectually less challenging. And you already think like, well, I already know how to win against recreational players, but that's not the point. You want to maximize and win even more. And that's usually a very good area where you can gain a bigger edge. Um, Another thing that we touched on was about being smart about taking shots. Like the compound effect uh, of taking shots is really huge. And there's ways to take shots more effectively or be smarter about the shots that you take. And we gave, I think, a lot of good advice on that as well. So yeah, great pot. We're going to wrap it up. I want to thank Patrick again. I want to thank co-host Adam. And I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Like, subscribe, turn notifications on, and leave your main takeaways down below. Remember, sponsor GTO Wizard will give away one free subscription to GTO Wizard to one of the main takeaways down below. Thank you all for tuning in and see you in the next episode.